ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, Terramaster, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. Corey Ellis, welcome to ATV Talk. How are you, sir? Doing good, doing real good. You know, excited to be on here and uh, kind of get some info out there, I guess, or whatever, or, you know, and just share share some ATV experiences, I guess, is how I should say it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Hey, you know, how are you and how are things, you know, before we get started and, you know, you're holding up. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, it's funny cause I've spent my whole life just about, you know, traveling to ATV races or events, you know, every year it's, you know, 10, 15 at a minimum up to 30, 40 races or events every year. And this last year with the COVID situation, it was, I was home. I was home more than I've ever been in my whole entire life, you know, and it was, it was like, I spent more time with my wife and my family than I've ever spent. I feel like, you know, and, um, my, my wife and I had a second child this last year, a little boy, it's five months old, um, now, or just about five months old now. So that was really cool to be home and spend some time with the family. Uh, my wife was pregnant and then, you know, having giving birth with our boy and stuff. So that was, that was awesome. It was, it was kind of a weird year not traveling, but it was also probably the best year not traveling. So it was, it was, it's been, it's been good. Plus work's been super busy. And you work a lot from home now. Um, I probably am about 50% home, 75% home. Um, I, I go, I go in the office. Um, I work for GBC more sports tire manufacturer. Um, I go in the office usually about four to six days a month, depending on what's going on with events and things. Um, I could be at an event every weekend, every month, just about if I, if I really wanted to. So, I mean, you go to events two to four days, sometimes depending on what event it is, or if it's something I just happen to get lucky, it's local or close. I can be, I can, it's a one, it might be a one day event. Um, so I travel a lot. I don't go back east as much as I used to, um, but I do a lot of West Coast stuff because um, we, we also do manufacture um, light truck tires, Jeep tires. So I do a lot of ATV, ATV events and also a lot of Jeep events now too. So I'm, I'm always out off-roading in one form or another, it seems like, on the weekends. That's awesome. I mean, and, and do the Jeep events, do you get to take the family? Um, sometimes they come, sometimes it, it just depends on where it's at. And, you know, if our daughter has school or not, um, 
like um, we had a Jeep event up here. Um, I live in St. George, Utah now. We have a Jeep event up here at San Hollow last month, winter four by four Jeep Jamboree. And it was three days of off-roading out at San Hollow. And the third day, which is a Saturday, um, my wife and daughter and son, we all went out in the, you know, on the Jeep tour or Jeep rally on the ride, you know, with the whole family. So sometimes they do get to come. So it's cool. You know, um, my, my wife, you know, when I met her, she had LTR, you know, so she was already into, you know, off-roading her kind of her whole life. And she has a Jeep we built her and stuff. And so, so we're, you know, we're, we're into it. We try to get out and do as much as we can, but also on the other hand, sometimes it's, you want to get away from what you do every day too. It's your job. And sometimes you want to go do something different. So, so it's a little, it's a little give and take. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to get away. <laughs> yeah. That's uh we've been, we've been married uh, eight years now. I think we've been on one actual non-racing vaca- vacation. So, <laughs> so usually they're usually vacations are intertwined with uh, a race or a uh, event of some sort. <laughs> So. You know that I get it because most of my life was spent that way too. Yeah. Um, didn't you grow up in the up in the Northwest? Yeah, I I was uh, raised in in Southwest Washington, just north of Portland, Oregon, um, little town called Longview. Um, yeah, so I mean, I grew up there, started riding on basically fire roads. You know, that's where it all started for me. What kind of bike did you ride up there? Um, well, it's you know. How, how I got into ATV was I was about 10 years old or so. And my neighbor got, it was, had to be 87 or so. My neighbor bought, he was about five years older than me. He got a brand new um, TRX 250R. And I saw that thing and I was like, man, that thing is cool. And he'd ride that thing up and down the street because we were kind of in a, we were full on um, track houses, but we were a little bit residential, but we had some logging roads just, just down the street from us just a little bit. So he would ride that thing up and down the street and all that stuff. And told my parents like, you know, I, I want to get a quad. I want to get a quad. I want a quad. So we, you know, I'm 10 years old, but I'm not, a, I'm not a little guy. <laughs> I'm a pretty big guy. <laughs> so we go to the dealership, the dealership, you know, does the old, well, you can't buy anything over an ACC for this kid. Cause he's, you know, he's not old enough. So I got a, a 1988, we got a brand new, um, LT80 and that's what, that was my first quad and broke a few axles on it, jumping it on the logging roads and <laughs> tore that thing up. That's for sure. How big were you at that point? Oh gosh. I was probably, I was definitely over five foot and I was probably definitely over 125 pounds. And they put you on 80. Yeah. I was just huge on that thing. I mean, I, I, I look like probably me riding a 50 now or something. I mean, or, you know, not much different. So it was, it was really, it was, it was pretty fun. Um, you know, there's where we lived at too, from Mount St. Helens blowing up. Um, they did a lot of, a lot of dredging in Columbia river and Cowlitz river. So there was a lot of sand, like river sand places where we could go ride. And so, I had that LT80 and we go to these places where they dredge the sand and these big sand hills that they would dredge or seem big back in the day. And, you know, I, I try to go up and my dad finally like, Oh, look at some paddle tires for this. And so we put some paddles on it when you go out there in the sand and stuff. And my dad got tired of basically tired of watching me ride around and, and, and then I disappear and he went where I went. So he went back to the dealership and he bought a, 
think, yeah, I think it was a used at that time. It was a 85, either 85 or 86 LT250. Cause like we got, we got one Suzuki. We might as well buy another one, you know, instead of buying a Honda that everybody had, we got LT80, we might as well buy, might as well buy an LT250 because that way we got the same brand. <laughs> so he got a, he got an LT250 and he could, he was following me around. And then, and then my mom was standing there. So my parents were not off-road people at all. I mean, this is kind of was like, well, he's having fun, dude. We'll just kind of go along and do this. So ended up, my mom was standing there. So my dad's like, and I, and I started to kind of, I could, I was 10 and I started riding his LT250 because I'm so big on this 80. So he's like, well, he's riding this bike all the time. And I'm not going to stand there. So he went and bought another LT250 for me to ride. And my mom rode around on the 80 and just tooled around. <laughs> on the so we were out, you know, out doing all that and stuff. So that's kind of how, how we kind of started ATV and, you know, back in the day. I and mean, that's, that was, that was my first introduction to ATVs. You know, I mean, as a kid growing up, I mean, at least for me, me and my friends were all into dirt, you know, watching dirt bikes, you know, watching Ricky Johnson and Jeff Ward and Ron Machine and all those guys and, you know, motocross, supercross, you know, I, I wasn't really at the time that knowledgeable about ATV motocross or ATV racing or even three-wheel racing. It was, it was, I was, I was more of a motorcycle kind of follower and then rode ATVs, you know. I had a dirt bike at one point before the, before the quad, but it was like a little, little, de- a little like uh, Suzuki 80 or something we had for a year or two and rode it a little bit around, but just never was my thing. I really enjoyed, enjoyed, but I enjoyed the sport of motocross, I guess. You enjoyed watching it, but you didn't yeah. enjoy doing it. Yeah. So where did the, the racing come in? Um, so I had a friend, um, Zach Hedlund that lived down the street from me and he had, he had a, I think he had a CR 80 and his dad had a, like a 200 X or had a 200 X or something and had a couple three wheelers. And so we'd all go riding logging roads and, and it's kind of funny because a few years before that, I mean, we're all, you know, kids always riding bicycles and at the time, you know, I mean, kids, we'd ride, we were first, second grade and we'd ride our bikes three or four miles to school and parents would just leave in the morning for work. And all right, we'll see you tonight. And we'd ride our bikes to, we'd ride our bikes to school and then ride around town all day and then ride home at night. Anyways, Zach now got into BMX racing. So he took me BMX racing. So I went and BMX race a couple times on bicycles. Well, then we get this, we get these quads and we're doing the quad stuff and having fun. And he has a three wheeler and, and a dirt bike and stuff. So, He's like, Hey, there's a, we're going to go to this local race and watch, watch the three wheelers and the quads and stuff race. And it's a local race at, at Woodland, this little town just down the road from us a little ways. And they had like a, they called it a scramble. So it was basically like a oval track, small oval track with a dog leg in it. So it was wide open other than this dog leg in it. And it had kind of a tight turn before the dog leg on one end. It had a big sleeper on one end and a kind of a tighter tighter funnel on the other side and one like roller high speed jump. It was just people never lift. It's just a, like a flyaway jump. <laughs> so he, he takes me to the thing and I'm just like, I gotta do this. Like I gotta, I gotta do this. And they had, they, they'd race, they'd race every other weekend and they only raced in the winter. Cause it was, it was ash from the mountain that they raced on. So they couldn't run in the summer cause it was too dry. So only one race in the winter when it rained all the time. 
And they'd run the scrambles track every other Sunday. And there's a church across the street and they couldn't, you couldn't fire a bike until the church bells rang for church to go out. So literally you'd show up at 10 o'clock in the morning, kind of hang out, sign up. And about noon, the church bells would ring and everybody fired their bikes up. And that's when practice started. So it was pretty, it was pretty funny because everybody just wait till the church bells rang and they'd fire bikes up and then get ready for practice. And then, and they would go through the races real quick and they were done on Sunday by three or four o'clock, five o'clock at the latest because it got dark. So, I mean, three or four hours, they'd knock out a couple motos for everybody real quick. And um, so they'd race those on every other Saturday through, or sorry, every other Sunday through the winter. And then they would motocross every other Saturday. So they were alternating weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. That was kind of their, always their schedule, you know, when I was growing up, if you were racing motocross or are racing the scrambles, but at the time they never ran the quads on motocross, only dirt bikes, but the scrambles, they ran quads, dirt bikes, three wheelers, but the dirt bikes were almost like a TT bike setup that guys had run because it was real flat and they'd run like a TT setup, but it was kind of loamy, but it was kind of a mix of a TT, kind of a TT track with motocross dirt. It's kind of a weird deal. Wouldn't really rut, but it'd get berms in it. But um, anyway, so I tell my dad, I want to go race this thing. This, you know, it's two weeks. It's two weeks I got to go race this thing. So he's like, all right, you know, you know, I'm riding this 250 the whole, this whole time, you know, now I'm riding this LT 250 and I'm 10 years old still. And he's like, well, you know, I guess we'll ride, you know, I'm kind of too big for that little bike. Well, I guess we'll ride the 250. So the first race I go to, I'm 10 years old, show up on an LT 250. And my, my only goal was, cause there was really no classifications. It was pros or amateurs. It was just, 252 stroke and they had run it like that. I think they would run a heat race, a couple of heat races in that term your main, I think if I can remember. Right. Anyways, I was just, all I had want to do was not get lapped. The track time was like 20 or 30 seconds. It was like a little tiny oval. I'm just like, as long as I don't get lapped, I'm good. And I, I went out there and raced 250 class. It's little, I mean, I looked a little on it, but on 80, I looked huge, but I'm riding an LT 250 and my whole goal was the first race was don't get lapped. Don't get lapped. And I think I ran one race and then we came back two weeks later and that was the final race of the, of the year for their series. And I went out and I got all squirrely in the, in the big sweeper and they had, so the church across the street and the church across the street, there was like a, like a two lane per like a 55 mile an hour, two lane road that separates the two. Well, to keep the noise down, they had this big gigantic, um, wood fence that's probably 10 feet tall on the side of the track separating to keep the noise down from the street and cars and all that stuff my second race i'm I, i'm out there racing and having fun and got a little squirrely and tired and <laughs> kind of high-sided a little bit on the on the sleeper and ended up putting that quad halfway through the fence through the wood fence <laughs> so so it did, the second race didn't end so well as I felt, I fell off and the quad rolled through and went halfway through the fence. So it wasn't that great. So I think my dad was kind of rethinking this, you know, like, I don't know about this deal, you know? So I had one of my really good friends um, at the time, Jason Nelson, he, he somehow got into flat track racing. I'm not sure how he, how he did, but there was, we kind of like, okay, yeah, we need to calm down. He was, he was racing flat track and it was AMA. So you had it, you had to be on an 80 at the time. So he built a, 
I can't remember what brand it was. You might remember they had those conversions for like a CR80 to turn them into a four wheeler. I think it was like an ice cream or something. He had one of those things. So, you know, we're looking at like, well, if I go race TT, I got to ride an 80. Well, we don't have an 80. And we don't, I'm not sure about Bill Williams' conversion bikes because they're kind of like you had to have someone know what they're doing and build all stuff. Or it was, it was quite a bit of, quite a bit of work. So my dad's like, well, we got an LT250 sitting here. We got two of them. And my mom kind of wasn't really hip with the whole riding thing too much. She was like, I'm fine on that LT80. So I don't know where we got the idea from. But my dad talked to one of his friends as a machinist and was like, if I bring this LT250 to you and I bring a, RM80 dirt bike. Can you put the motor in that LT250? Guy's like, he's really, I mean, he was a real good machinist. He's like, yeah, I can do whatever. And I think his kids, actually, his kids did race three wheelers at the time and they're running conversion KX80s, I think KX60s. And they're racing, they're racing TT2 or TT and Oval Track too. So we ended up, took the summer and went and bought a brand new RM88 RM250 from the dealership. I took the 85 LT250 and he had all summer and stuffed the motor in this thing and built a pipe. I can't, I think, I think he got it all done and didn't have the pipe done. I think I remember right. I think my dad hauled the thing all the way down to Trinity. And I think Harry built a custom pipe for it, if I remember right, <laughs> and drove it back. Somehow we saw Trinity in the magazine or something. And somehow they always had a really custom pipe and they hauled it down there, got a pipe made for it. So I ended up racing. And LT250, which I actually kind of halfway fit on with RM80 motor in it. And so I went to TT races and I went to a TT race. I'm like, this kind of really isn't that fun. Like, cause it was short tracks. So it was in, we were racing inside of a little tiny arena, just doing circle track, you know? And so there, and so we, you know, and at the time those people that ran the circle track out, they, what they would do is they would race, circle track one weekend and arena cross the next weekend. So they would come in, move all the dirt, build jumps and have a race the next weekend. So we're like, like, let's, let's try, let's try the arena cross. That, that might be more fun. I don't, I'm not a fun one around in a circle. So, so the, the, and the funny part is too, is so that, that bike, the guy is like, we're trying to figure out how to make this bike lower. The guy for TT just built, takes the rear shock off it, puts a strut in it, had no rear shock. That, that's that's a good good. That might, have been, that might have been why I was having no fun on TT too. There was no rear shock and it was just a strut. I mean, we didn't know didn't know anything. We were just out there having fun. And so we um, go to Arena Cross. Like like let's go to Arena Cross next weekend. So we throw the shock back in the thing and we go to Arena Cross next weekend. And it was like I show up with this thing. They're like they're like they put me in with the LT80s and I just smoke these kids because I'm riding the. RM80 motor, I'm shifting gears and you know, they're on LT80 and they're just I barely go on the track and I'm actually kind of have some little bit of speed because my bike's way better. So they end up sticking me in with the blasters. So I started racing that that RM80 bike in with blasters. And we had a we had I had more fun riding the arena cross. So it was like, well, where else can we race this thing at? And then we found out about Salem Arena Cross. So going, then we went to Salem Arena Cross. And that's when I went to Salem, that was the first time I saw Doug I you know, I showed up there and Doug's a pro and I was like, Oh wow. Pros, you know, like, look at these guys were waiting to watch the guys and watch, you know, him and Greg Longy and, um, 
um, God, what's um, Anthony Cree. I don't know if you remember Anthony Cree at all. Um, Keith Marks, you know, there was a, you know, there was a few guys out there that were really fast, you know, out there at the time. And Doug was, Doug was like the arena, Doug and Greg Longy were like the arena cross champions. Like they would just duke it out. I mean, it was just, you'd sit in the stands and watch those guys and like, man, this is pretty cool. And watch, you know, watch these guys. And I'm out there racing this little LT or RM80 with the blasters, you know, having fun and stuff. And that was kind of when we found out about, you know, also about that time was about found out about Mickey Thompson's and those guys were always talking about, Oh, we're going to go to Mickey Thompson. We're going to go to Mickey Thompson race. And so that kind of sparked that whole interest of, you know, what's, what are Mickey Thompson's and finding out about them and watching them, you know, cause it was hard to find stuff on TV at the time and there was no internet. So you couldn't, you didn't know what was going on unless it was in a magazine or someone talking about it or happened to see it. You know, um, it, it is pretty amazing that we can just click on a couple buttons and see everything now. Yeah. And, and back in our day, it was word of mouth or you had to make the right phone calls. You had to know somebody that was involved to, 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 to get your way there or, or yeah. to get through, <clears throat> you know, now That's, you can put an address yeah. on your phone and drive a thousand miles away. And you know, you're, you, you know where you're going. <clears throat> I remember more than once getting in the truck and having just, I know it's in that state and I'm just, uh, we just go. You well, know? That, that was, you know, I stayed with, I stayed with Goodman's a couple of years when I first started racing nationals and Dorothy, Mrs. Goodman, she would have these maps. I, I understand maps written out directions, how to get to all the nationals. Like you had to be on your A game. Like she'd give you this map and then say, you know, go down this highway, 28 miles, get off on this exit and then go down this road and look for this truck on the right hand side, turn it there, go down another five miles. I mean, it was, and you had, you, I mean, you had an road atlas, but, but she also had handwritten roadmaps, like, and she made a copy of it and like, okay, here's your directions on how to get to the race, you know, for this weekend or whatever, you can follow, you know, big Harold and stuff. And, and follow them, or if you get, you know, or if you want to go a different time, or you want to stop your gas, here's directions you can figure out how to get there. I mean, I remember like just navigating the country, like just off of maps compared to now. You know, and when navigation first came out, it was so horrible. I remember, I remember we were driving a motorhome at the time, and I got navigate. I got, I'm going to get navigation. I got this Alpine navigation, and it was horrible. It would run me 300 miles the wrong direction through little towns. And I look at it on a map. I'm like, why did I go this way? This thing is horrible. Just <laughs> <laughs> dumb stuff sometimes. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it, but back then though, it was you had you had to listen to what people were saying, look in the magazines. I mean, it was just you're always searching for information on stuff. It was you know you really had to pay more attention than just type into Google. You know, where's there a race this weekend? And you know, and St. George, Utah, or something. I mean, it's you really had to look forward for that stuff. And I mean, the first time I kind of saw Gary Denton or, you know, Donnie Banks or Marty Harder and those guys was just, I, I don't, I mean, I think it was, might've been the Golden State Nationals. They had it on TV one year, I think, or a round of it, American Sports Cavalcade. It was something like that it was from Carlsbad. Back in the, I mean, like, that'd be like 87, 88. And I somehow I got that thing VHS recorded and I wore that tape out watching those guys, you know, but I mean, 
Yeah, that was days, man. That was the thing back then. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was cool. You know, I mean, we started doing arena cross, and then and that kind of just transitioned into motocross. And you know, once because arena cross is only during the winter when it was raining all the time. You know, then that would go to hit scrambles races, and then in the summer we started racing motocross. You know, and we try to hit as many motocross races as we could. I kind of finally got. I don't remember exactly when I kind of got too big for that 80, but that 80 just, I was a big kid and it was pulling a lot of weight and pulling that chassis around. It wasn't, it was started having a hard time. So we ended up, we ended up putting the 250 motor back in that thing. And I think, I think we put it back in it and we sold it to a friend of ours. And, and then we had that other, that other um, LT250 XR race in that one. You know, I think probably about 91-ish or so, 92, somewhere in there. Can't remember years that well, but yeah, I started racing a bunch of motocross. Then. And by then, I think I was riding my Ken Immediate at the time. You know, I'm um, hitting all the local races and, you know, Doug and all the local big guys were all, you know, we're starting to go to Mickey's and all that stuff. So that was kind of like, somewhat became my focus. I was like, oh yeah, I want to go to Mickey's. You know, it wasn't. I want, I just want to go try it, see what I can do. You know, that was kind of, but I was at that time, I was only 14, 13, 14. So I wasn't old enough. You know, Mickey's, Mickey's back in the day to race a quad at it, you had to be, they had this weird, it was a real weird or quad or maybe it might have been anything at Mickey's. Um, you either had to be 16 or you had to have your drive or your driving permit. And so when I was, 15, I think it was 15. I signed up for driver's ed early so I could get my permit so I could go race in Mickey's. I think it was in <laughs> 92 at Seattle. Like I was barely, I was barely over 15 years old, you know, but we went and got my permit so I could, so I could go race Mickey's pretty, pretty much. That's kind of what it came down to, but yeah, but growing up, I mean, we did, we, it was nothing for us to go hit, hit a couple, you know, hit a Friday night arena cross, Friday night arena cross, go race on Sunday. And then it was, and it was one of those things too, that we were racing quads, but it was like, man, you know, we're standing around here the whole time, the whole time for two motos, you know, let's we'll ride another class. Well, so I ended up getting a dirt bike and racing dirt bikes too. So I was at one point, I was racing a, a RM250, an RM80, and a LT250 all at the same same time, three days a week, or three times a weekend, basically for for a while there. So it was we had a, we had a lot of racing going on in a short amount of time. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times we just rode the dirt bike just because we could go places and race where there where they wouldn't let quads at, or there would be more people in the class. You know, so kind of got on the dirt bikes pretty heavy there for a while, just as a substitute for the quads, just to get some more racing. That's awesome. Yeah. You ride dirt bike now. Um, I don't currently have one. I've the last few years kind of been on and off. Like I get one, I'm all excited. I'm going to ride the thing. I'm going to ride the thing. I get it. And then I ride it twice. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, you know, I, part of my problem is I always like to go ride with somebody. And if I don't have somebody to go ride with that much, it's, it's harder to go to, and ride by yourself um just i'm always worried about falling down and getting hurt you know out free riding or and the and when i moved to st george they had a, they had a motocross track and i was like i'm gonna build a motocross track and then like then i was like well i kind of need to go somebody i don't know anybody here and i found one friend kind of one friend that was i was going with for a couple times and then he sold his dirt bike and then it was like ah, 
then it sat and we started working on the house stuff and we're like, I can use that money for something else. So the dirt bike went away again. So I, I would really like to get a dual sport and dual sport and do that a little bit. Um, you know, my wife and I talked about maybe her getting one and I getting one. And so we could both kind of go ride and do, do some exploring and, you know, ride some roads to go out and explore through like Zion and out places around here. They're close to where we're at. Well, there's some pretty cool trails where you are just, I mean, I like to mountain bike and I, and I'll bet you it's just never ending, you know, fun zone there, isn't it? Yeah. There's a ton of mountain biking trails. Like Johnny Gallagher was just out here a couple weeks ago um, for a few weeks. Um, Jerry McClure uh, and uh, Kate Osborne, his, his girlfriend, they both race GNCCs. They're, they just happen to be coming out this way too. Um, to just do some mountain biking and, Johnny's like, Oh, you're out here. Well, I'm out here, you know, I'm out with Corey. So they came out and they all did a bunch of mountain biking, but I just, I sold my mountain bike about two years ago. I bought a Levo an e-bike. I was going like, I'm going to ride this thing. I went and rode one. It was fun. I had a great time. And then I just never rode it. And then we started working on building house and stuff. And I'm like, I can use the cash, sold it. And then I ended up getting a loaner of uh, one of those Yamaha e-bikes, the hardtails. And I had that for about a year, rode that quite a bit, took it to a bunch of events and stuff. And then that was just a loaner. So I had to give that back. So um, I wouldn't mind getting another e-bike for sure. An e-bike's fun. Like it's for me, not riding training anymore. Like I can hop on it and have fun. Like I always, I never enjoyed mountain biking because I didn't like climbing. I didn't like going slow. So the e-bike, you can climb at a decent speed where it keeps, for me, it keeps, it keeps me motivated and keeps it fun for me. So yeah, I, I definitely want to get on a mountain bike more. I just got to get another bike at this time. So the, the, dude, the, the climbing is the suffering portion for the fun that you're going to have when you go downhill. But the thing with the e-bike is you can climb and still suffer, but you can just do it a whole lot faster. <laughs> I just hate going, like I hate mountain biking when you're when you're just grinding and you're going nowhere. I don't mind grinding, but I don't like going nowhere and grinding like so slowly like you're gonna fall over. I don't like that. <laughs> I'll grind and suffer, but if I'm going 10 miles an hour up the hill and grind and suffer, I'm good at that. But if I'm going two, I'm not having fun. I just want to I just want to cover that distance, but <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have a dirt bike right now, but I mean, we got in the dirt bikes, we had the dirt bikes pretty heavy. Um, I think 91, 92, I qualified for Loretta's, um, on dirt bike. I think it was 91. I qualified for Loretta's on dirt bike. And the next week I broke my wrist. And at the time, like the dirt bikes, like it's, I think that's why I really, went more towards ATVs. The dirt bikes were just so political. Like everybody was watching what everybody's doing and upset. And it was always an argument. And this guy got to go out and free practices and you didn't. And it was just this constant battle bicker with the dirt bike community people. Just everybody was, everybody wanted to be the best and they would just, and it wasn't like a, where I was at, I didn't see Like there was people that were tight knit, but there wasn't ATV guys were all buddies. Like, You'd show up at the race, everybody help each other out. Everybody hung out together because I mean you're like the redhead stepchild. So you had to be friends with ATV guys because there was nobody else out there. You no. Know? <laughs> so I always enjoyed that. So I guess when I always enjoyed the ATVs more. I mean, I always had I always had a lot of I don't say I had 
more fun riding ATV. I think because I excelled at maybe a little bit better or more, but the community of ATV people was compared to the dirt bike people for me was more enjoyable and that made it more fun and made made me want to go to the races more and and keep doing it more. When I I broke my wrist, I was just kind of like, I'm, you know, I was kind of like, I'm kind of over this a little bit. And then right after I, right after I broke my wrist, that was right about when I was old enough to go race Mickey's, you know? And at the time I was kind of, I was kind of like, I don't, you know, I kind of wanted to race, didn't want to race broke my wrist kind of coming back and then i went and went and raced that mickey's race and after i said mickey's race i'm like i'm riding a quad this is i'm not forget that dirt bike stuff you know i mean i'm having fun i go to mickey's race it's like you know you're there with the best guys at the time but then i was you know just turned pro it was like so i was having a lot more fun on the, on the quad and you know i wasn't the, you know doug was always when i was growing up in motocross doug Doug and the Northwest was the fastest guy around on, on motocross track. I mean, Longy was pretty close to arena cross, but Doug was the moto guy. Like when I turned pro, I, I go to the local race and Doug would just take off. Like, I, I mean, it was like, there might be someone kind of close, but Doug was gone. And then there were everybody else is battling. And, you're, and I mean, I'm a half a track behind Doug, you know, and I was like, man, all I want to do is beat Doug. Like he's so fast knowing kind of looked up to him at the time because like he was the fast guy on, on, on the quads you know at the time he was working at jp you know and so he always had like he had the the you know the he was like one of the first guys in our area that had a frame you know it was like oh my god he has a frame on that thing is it aftermarket frame that thing's badass you know it's not gonna break and all this stuff is so it's pretty cool you know I'm, I'm but i was like the, the lonely lt250 guy but everybody else on hondas but we were sticking it. We were sticking on that route at the time, but and then Doug, you know, Doug got his job at at Lakers and moved away. And then after that, it was you know Keith Marks was one of the top guys. Crees kind of start stopped racing, and then so you know, I think Marks and I kind of battled out for a few years there. You know, there was a there's a few other people. El, the Elkins brothers were always you know coming up and going pretty good. So we had we didn't have a huge a huge turnout up there at the time, but we had a decent turnout that was some good guys that went, if we went to a Mickey's, you know, we had a, you know, back in 92, um, 93, we had, we had chance of the Northwest guys, you know, at least two or three or four of us possibly making, making the night show to Mickey's. So we had, we had some pretty good speed, you know, and the small group of people that we had. I loved going up to the North with you guys and, and talking to all those guys. And, and when I was Doug's mechanic and, we would bench race and listen to some of those old stories with, you know, and they would talk about things that Doug had done and the, the, the racing up there and how it was. Uh, I just don't know how you guys did it with the weather. <laughs> so that's, that's how I got out of California. <laughs> the, the year I, so I, 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 so the year I graduated, I graduated high school in 95. And then, so 95 and then the next year, I think we had that winter, we had, I want to say it was like 156 days of measurable rain. It was, it was crazy. Like it rained every day. Like there was nothing going on. And I had a, I had a dirt bike at the time. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, dirt bikes, way less maintenance. And where we rode 
was pretty sandy because we'd always ride, go, we'd go ride. There was no more tracks to ride. Excuse me. There are no tracks to ride. We go ride over where they dredged all the river sand. So it was just sand whoops and sand berms and just go wherever you want. Kind of, kind of almost like Glamis, but on a smaller scale, maybe, maybe more like, like Duma or not Duma, but Pismo or something. But the sand was really coarse. It was like almost it was like a riverbed sand. Um, but it would tear some stuff up. So I had a dirt bike at the time and it just rained and I just go over there and ride. It, it wouldn't be, a, it would be a normal day for me to load up in the rain, show up over there, change my clothes in the cab of my truck, unload my dirt bike, ride a couple of motos in the rain, load back up, go home, wash my bike in the rain and put it in the garage and dry it off. You know I mean? It was just, it just never quit raining that year. And, um, at the time, um, by that time I had a Lager chassis and my parents are pretty good friends with Mark and Susie. And, and I was like, I got to get out of here. Like it's raining. I, I can't take this rain. Like whether I'm, you know, I didn't really have a job at the time. Kind of, I was going to college a little bit here and there and racing a little bit. And, you know, we were racing nationals that year too. And it was like, well, I mean, if I want to ride more and race nationals, I need, I need to have the rain so I can ride more. And that's, kind of how the California move came, you know, Doug, Doug was working for, for Mark and Susie. Um, I think he, he was living in the attic above the shop when I think when he first moved down there, if I remember right. And then, and then he moved, I think he, he either, I can't remember if he was still working there when I started or he quit right after or what it was, but um, Doug, Doug had his own place by then. So I moved down to work for Lagers and literally lived in the rafters of the shop. Like Mark had a storage room above the shop and that's where I lived. It had a shower and it had a sink. If you had to use the bathroom, you had to go outside downstairs into the shop to use the bathroom. (laughs) So, and, and it was just his shop at the time was just like a, I think it was three or four. I mean, you, you probably remember going up to Valley center. It was what three or four Bay shop behind his house you know, at the time. And I was living in the rafters basically of the, of the shop for two years, you know, I was racing and working for Mark, you know, I didn't, I kind of went to learn how to weld and be a welder, but they were so busy at the time with shipping and just getting stuff ready. I just, I basically ended up, you know, stuff would come back from powder coat. I would prep it, box it, get it all ready to go. Susie would ship, you know, take care of the shipping, but I was basically just shipping bitch pretty much you know so you know, i'd go around on the weekends and you know and and go racing the weekends and they let me off for nationals and things like that you know to take off and so it kind of worked out but that's that's kind of when i moved to california I just got tired of the rain and had an opportunity to you know go li- go live in california and ride more so packed up i had a had a blazer at the time i packed it full and had a flatbed trailer and put my dirt bike my jet ski and my quad on it and drove to Cal- in my toolbox and drove to California and I had all my stuff out in his covered shed. I wasn't a covered shed. It was a, just one of those RV things you park your cars under <laughs> and all my stuff sitting in there and living in a, living in a crawl space, basically. So, yeah, you know, that, that was a little, huh? What's that? You've stepped up a little, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh. Still, but, but it's smart. But so we moved to Cal, we moved, we moved to Utah about four years ago and my, my parents were friends with Lagers and they told Mark and Susie, 
because we're going to move to Utah. My parents, my parents went to California because they were tired of Washington Marine. Then they got to California and were tired of traffic and I was tired of traffic and everything. So I was coming to Utah. We're like, we're going to move to Utah and we'll build a, uh, so we built a house and built a mother-in-law's quarters for my parents on the house. So we buy this piece of property and tell Mark and Susie about it. And Oh, really? And they're listening. They're listening about a week later. Mark and Susie go like, Hey, we bought the lot next to you guys. We're going to build the house next to you guys. So Mark's actually my neighbor now. <laughs> so, nice. so if I need anything welded or anything fabbed up, I just go over next door to Mark and Hey Mark, can you weld this? Hey, can you fab this? So he works on a couple projects, some car projects for me here and there that I have on the side just for fun. So yeah, I still see Mark and Susie all the time. Nice. And your mom and dad live, live with you guys? Or? Yeah. Yeah. They live in, we have a, a mother-in-law's quarters for them. So yeah, they moved up here. They're, 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 my dad's retired. My mom's semi-retired. And so, um, yeah, they live, they live up here next door, pretty much are attached. So see them every day and stuff. So kind of hang out, hang out with the parents quite a bit. Oh, that's but, good. I mean, yeah. my wife and I care take and, and take care of my mom and dad. Um, and, and live here with them and take, you know, you just need to, my mom and dad, are, my dad's 85 and my mom's in her, in her late seventies. And, uh, my mom's, uh, has got some issues. Pops is still good, but yeah. you know, it, it, there's nothing like being around the people that you love. And my wife, gosh, I, I got to hand it to her. She takes on the brunt of the load and and really takes great care of my parents and makes sure they get what they need. And I mean, that's what she does for a living too. So uh, it just falls right into place. But uh, yeah, my, my dad's 77, but he, I think he thinks he's still like 45 or 50. Uh, we, <laughs> we got cool. some, sca- we got some scaffolding the other day and we're, we're out in the shed and put some, we have an RV bay in this in our garage and we're, and it's unfinished. So we've been kind of trying to finish it. And I'm up on this 10 foot scaffolding, trying to put insulation up on the roof, up in the rafters for we sheetrock. And my, and I'm kind of struggling a little bit when we first start, my dad's like, well, let me show you what to do. Let me show you. He starts climbing up the scaffolding. I'm like, what are you doing? Get off the scaffolding. He's like, well, I'm going to get up there and help you. I'm like, not climbing up. You're 77. You're not climbing the scaffolding to help me. I don't want you to fall, you know? So it's, you know, I mean, you fall, you, you still recover. If he falls, he's going to break. Yeah, I know. So I had to talk him down from the scaffolding the other day, but, but yeah, he, we're, he, we're always kind of, he's always wanting, he's retired. So he's always wanting to do projects and work on things. And, and so I, I always, I'm, I'm, always out there trying to help him as much as I can. Cause if it, I, I think if I was there, he'd be climbing the scaffolding if I wasn't there telling him no. So I, I got to kind of keep an eye on him sometimes, but he's, he's, he's definitely motivated to work. That's for sure. Well, Still. I always, I always remember him being as he was pretty persuasive <laughs> oh, yeah. to get something done. It, it was getting done. Yeah. He, you know, my dad, my dad and I probably like a lot of, a lot of, racers and their, you know, with their family helping them race, you know, um, there's a lot of people that like had peewee dads and all that stuff. And I was never on a peewee, but my dad, my dad was, you know, he, he was the one helped foot the bill for a lot of the racing for a lot of years. And he let me know it. And he, you know, he was, he wanted results and he, he wasn't scared to tell, tell me that either. So, but he wasn't, I mean, he, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stories 
a lot of stories with my dad, but yeah, he and overall, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade anything. You know, he was, he was always there, always, you know, one of the best, always pushed me to be better, you know, and, you know, he always, he always made sure that, you know, whatever it took, we, we, we would try to have, or try, you know, try to do for me and make us have, make us have the best stuff or, or have the opportunity to have the best stuff we could just because he, he wanted to succeed too. He, he's definitely a, uh, he wants to go out and win. If it was, you know, if, if he was on the bike, he wanted me to win. I mean, he was, I think he wanted to win more than I did a lot of the times, <laughs> most of the time, probably, <laughs> you know, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stories. I mean, if, yeah, I mean, if you're, I mean, don't get Shane, Shane started on my dad's, Shane and my dad just go back and forth. They, they, they have a good time together, but yeah, hit, Shane hits always, always, my dad was always, always washing bikes and always washing stuff and everything was always, my dad's a very clean person. Everything has to be clean and very nice and presentable. And he was, he's like, if you're not going to win, at least, at least look like you're going to win. You know, that was always kind of his motto. <laughs> so, I mean, there was, there was a lot of times in nationals, you know, when I was coming up racing that, you know, I was wrenching on the bikes and, and he would, he, he was, he was the official, official washer. And there'd be times between motos, I'd be like, you got to stop washing that thing. Like, I got to, I got to work on this thing for the next moto, you know? And Shane Hibbett come over and like, well, he's damn near washed the paint off that thing by now, you know, cause he'd be over there just washing and washing and washing and washing. But I mean, he was always clean. Shane was always, he's, you know, Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean, he'd always call him, you know, cause right now I was always washing stuff, you know, and when we stayed at Shane's a little bit, a couple of years He'd wash the van, he'd, the box van or whatever. It'd be raining out. He'd be washing the box in before we leave and change. He's like, what are you doing? You know, I got to make sure it's clean. I can't leave with a dirty team. Like it's raining outside. It's going to be dirty before I get to the freeway. He's like, as long as it's clean, I leave the driveway. I don't care. <laughs> so, you know, my, 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 my dad definitely did play a, play a very big role in my racing career through the years. With, you know, just being there for support and, you know, and, and, you know, trying to push me to to do better and and succeed. You know, um, so I, mean, I probably I probably would have given up racing a, some a few times if it wouldn't have been for him. With you know, without him pushing me and you know, and having some having some faith in me and knowing knowing that I could do what I could do and you know, and believing in me and, and wanting me to keep going. You know, it was it was it was good. We had a lot of we had a lot of good times as a family going to races and meeting a lot of people. And, you know, that's, that was probably one of the hardest things when you, as you know, probably quit going to races so much is the people you meet, the community, you know, I mean, I was there a lot with my family and then the relationships they built with other people's families and with sponsors and whatnot, you know, that's, that's the biggest thing when you quit racing, it's hardest to, I think hardest to walk away from is just the community, you know, when, when you kind of quit that whole thing, you know, it's just like when you and I reached out and I started talking to you on the phone that day and you instantly feel that same connection that there was there years prior, because you know, you and I were always in the same circle, but not always in the tight same circle. Yeah. And, so, but that means was we were just, you know, two people away from helping each other at any given moment. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't believe that our ATV family will ever be separate. 
I think if I call you in 30 years to talk, you will sit down and talk and it'll be like it was, you know, two weeks ago and nothing changed. Yeah. No, there's, I mean, there's definitely, you know, there's definitely people out there that in that community that, I mean, I still talk to, you know, I, I, not that I talk to a lot of people. I I always want to talk to more people, but it's like, you know, it's life. It's, you get busy and I'm like, I should call that person. I should call that person. But there's, there's a bunch of people out there that, you know, like you said, if you didn't talk to them for 20 years and talk and call them up, they, they, you know, help you out or give their shirt off their back or, you know, talk to you for an hour. But there's also people too that I, 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 I mean, things change. I haven't talked to people in 15 years or 10 years too. There's those people too, you know? So, but yeah, the time that there's, there, there are some, you know, and for majority of the people that you are really close with and get along with, I mean, in the racing, they're, they're lifelong friends for sure. I mean, well, even your adversaries become friends to a point, uh, you know, because yeah, you're not racing anymore. And the soft, this, the stories have softened a little, I mean, there are people that you'll never, ever be able to sit down and have dinner with, but you know, uh, I mean, I loved, uh, I had Doug on episode one. Yeah. I, I had the question about, you know, who his nemesis was, you know, he, and he said, Joe bird. And, and when I'm talking to Joe bird, Joe bird mentions Doug Eichner and you just yeah. laugh because those two still would probably go out and bang bars if they got to ride, uh, you know, against each other. Yeah. That, that was always, that was always a, a good one. Left everybody on the edge of their seat with those two. That's for sure. Oh, you know, the, the funny, like I heard on you know, Doug talking and, about how, you know, Joe would run into him three or four times and Doug hits him once. And then Joe's like, Oh, we're even, you know, that's just, that's how Joe is. You know, you got me back. We're even. And Doug's just like, what do you mean? You've been running me for six months, you know, every race or even one time. <laughs> you know, Doug, and Doug doesn't let Doug doesn't let that stuff go. I mean, that's, I mean, when I, like when I was growing up watching Doug, I mean, he was aggressive. He was out there and you know, he, if something went on, he'd, he'd be in the pits, just blah, 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 blah. that person is like a little bulldog. You know, it's all over him, you know, but, but Doug was also the nicest guy there too. I mean, just the most friendly, nice guy would help you out. But when it came to racing, he was serious. He was dead serious, you know, no matter what, but he was, he was always a great guy on, on off the track, you know, to talk to and hang out with. When the green flag dropped, look out. Cause he was yeah. high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, so back to the racing stuff, like, you know, the Mickey's deal back 92, I think I think it was that first year on the Mickey's at Seattle. Like that was probably, that was probably the most nervous race I've ever been at in my life. Cause if anybody had ever, if you've never been to a Mickey's, there's nothing like, like they would time qualify. I think it was it two people on the track at once or one. Was it two people? I can't staggered. They would do one. And then it was a, if I remember correctly, it was a two lap deal. And as you started your second lap, they started the next person. Yeah. So that, that was like the first Mickey's for me was the most nervous I've ever, ever been in a race. Somehow I got like, I think I was like last or like third, I was in the last three people to qualify. My first race. So I had to sit there in line for a good half hour, 45 minutes and watch <laughs> everybody in front of me go out on the track 
And I was just, I was a nervous wreck going out on the track. And, and I, I qualified, but I think my mom, my mom probably remembers this better than I do. I think either I qualified on the, you had to qualify to make the, do you have to qualify to make the night show? And then you had to qualify in the heat race for the main, right? Is that what it was? You had to qualify for your starting position in the heat. Yeah. So I did qualifying. And then my heat race, I was right there on the bubble of qualifying, not qualifying. And I was counting people's come off track and I'm like, I didn't qualify. And I was so upset. I was so bummed out. And I was like, just pissed. And my mom went up and looked and she's like, you made it. You're the last one. I'm like, what? I made it. And so it was like, went from just being upset, mad at myself to like on top of the world, like first Mickey's and I, and I qualified, you know, cause it was, it was a big deal to qualify for the main. I mean, it was a huge deal. Like if you qualified, you were like, not that you were somebody, but it was like, Hey, that guy, that guy's a fast guy. He can qualify for the Mickey's, you know, we know, we know people that have never made it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I qualified my very first Mickey's barely. And I go out in the race and I think the first lap I got, I just had ants in my pants and got all excited and I ended up running my foot over under the axle <laughs> and I got it out. I got it out and I, and I got going. I didn't get, I don't think I got lap, but I think I got like second to last or something, but I kind of, it was, I, I qualified and that was the biggest deal for me. It's like, I qualified, like I'm, I'm good. I, you know, I can go to another one now. And, I think we ran, we ran that one that year. And then we went to, uh, I went to Vegas that year too. Um, but the bike I was riding, talk about Doug and JP. So do you remember Doug building that first LT 250 for JP? And then him, I think he raced it like Anaheim Coliseum or somewhere. I think he might've won on it. Too. LA, LA Coliseum. LA Coliseum. Yeah. And I don't think he won. But he was battling with Earhart on that in the heat race. And that was the main event was those. It was, it was Earhart, Doug, and somebody else. And I can't remember who it was. Um, but it was the three of them. Yeah. And you could throw a blanket over them in the heat. And then in the main event, it was the same three. Yeah. Uh, it might have been Shepard. But I, no, what I don't think it was Shepard. I know yeah. it was Doug and Earhart, but I don't remember who else. And I think Doug ended up second. I think Earhart ended up winning that race. If I, if I, I, I just remember they built that bike. Doug was always riding a Honda, and he jumped on that thing and like was right up front at that race. And about that same time, because we were local up there, so JP was like everybody. Everybody knew JP. Everybody had. Everybody was at the time was starting to get. You know, at that time, I was starting to get A arms, starting to get swing arms, you know, of course, X caliber axles, you know, so everybody was starting to get all this JP stuff in the area. And Doug was working there, built that thing, and he was almost one, I think, or was up front. And about that time, I was still running a stock LT250. This had to be like 91. I was running a stock LT250. And I think we had like Olin shocks on it or something like that. And they had that bike and it was like about that time my bike just completely fell apart. Like the frame broke, like everywhere LT250 breaks. I mean, it was just the thing was junk. Like it we could have welded it back together, but it'd have been easier just to go buy another bike at the time. 
So we, and so we called up JP and bought and bought, I think it was like number two or three or five or something. Cause they only made a few of those things. JP did. We bought one of those JP LT two fifties, you know, and I'm, and I'm like 14 at the time, I think. And we buy this thing and my dad's not a mechanic. So we, we buy this LT 250 from JP, which I don't even remember not the stuff that Mark was building for JP, but the stuff that was actually coming out of JP. I don't remember the quality of that stuff that was coming out. I remember, but it was horrible, <laughs> horrible. So I, I, we bought one of those things and my dad's like, all right, well, here's all the parts. I guess you're going to put it together. I was like, okay. And I remember, I remember, I remember this day being in the garage with two sawhorses with a piece of plywood on it, with that frame sitting on it and trying to assemble this fucking, sorry, my language, trying to assemble this thing. And I was like, they should have sent me a hammer and a saw to put this thing together. Cause there's no way this thing is going together. And I mean, I didn't, I, I'm 14 years old. I don't kind of know what I'm doing that well, but this thing is not helping me out at, at all going together. And I fought everything on that bike, putting that thing together. And I had no clue what I was doing at all. But somehow I got that whole bike put together. And uh, I think we ended up calling Wayne, the PEP. And Wayne, Wayne got us some shocks for it. And so I rode that thing. I rode that thing at, trying to think, I rode that thing at those two Mickey races, I believe. That first year I raced, I raced Seattle and Vegas. Seattle and I rode Vegas. And when I went to Vegas, I didn't qualify at Vegas. So the next year we're like, we're gonna, we're gonna run the whole series. It was like 93. We're I'm like, we're gonna run the whole series next year for Mickey's. You know, I qualified for one, went to another one. Like, because at the time for me, nationals was nationals was on the other side of the country. I lived in Washington State. It was so far away, such a big commitment. But Mickey's were West Coast. Nationals, like, you'd see some magazine coverage of it. It wasn't that great. But there would always be, there was always Mickey's coverage. You go to the Mickey's race, there was 50,000, 60,000 fans there. The place was packed. It was like, would I either go race out in the Thule's across the country or go to Mickey's race in front of all these people? And it's like, and all the magazines, it's all everybody talked about on the West Coast is Mickey's, Mickey's, Mickey's. So it was like, I'm going to risk Mickey's. I'm, I don't really care. I mean, nationals to me weren't even a priority at that time. It was like, oh, I'm going to risk Mickey Thompson because it's the big thing to go to. So 94, we're, we're like, okay, we'll go race. We'll go race Mickey's or not 94, 93. We're like, we'll go race Mickey's. So we went and then we went to Anaheim was the first round in 93. And I think, I think it rained. And I think they did. I think they lined you up by how you finished the year before or something, but I ended up qualifying for the main and I got like a mid pack finish, I think. And then the second race of 93 of 93. So I, I was second race 93 was San Diego and we go to San Diego and same thing. It, it rained. I think there was no qualifying at all. And so we line up, we line up off points for heat race. And I think I was like mid pack mid pack or something. And somehow I, I ended up, I ended up getting a pretty good start and made some good passes. And I'm riding this, I'm riding this JP bike. That's just, 
it's not good at all. I mean, like Wayne had the shocks working good, but the bike was horrible. Like I didn't know anything about setting caster. I didn't know anything about anything. I just symboled the thing. I don't know what the camera was. Just I was riding it and it was just put together horrible. <laughs> so we go out and we race heat race. I think I got like, I had to get third in my heat race because they inverted the start for the main event and they had a split lane. I, I mean, I remember this, like it was yesterday. I just turned 16 the week before the race and they had a split lane there. So they had two different lines and right after this, you go off the start around the corner to the left and there's a split lane. And the whole time everybody's taking the inside for the whole night, they're taking the inside, they're taking the inside. It's a faster lane. When we were lined up waiting for the race, we were lined up waiting for the race. To, um, I'm watching the races. And they went out and they mowed down some of the jumps on the outside split lane because it was so much slower. So I'm watching the race before us and I'm kind of timing people on the cars or the buggies or whatever before us. I'm like, that outside line looks a little faster. Like, you know, I'm on the outside. I'm like, should I go for this outside line off the start? You know, I'm like, the inside's been faster all that long. I'm thinking to myself, because I'm on the front row and it's my fourth Mickey's ever. And I'm just like overthinking everything. So I finally decide... I said, like, I'm not going to go for it. Like the inside, just stick to the inside. It's been the fast line all night. You're going to just stick to that. Just funnel in, get in, get in place and see if you can make some passes. Cause the track was fairly one line. Cause it was, it rained so much. It was muddy. So I'm so nervous. And they, I think it was, I can't remember the flagger's name it was Jerry Welch. I think was a flagger. Was you it know, Stansbury? What's that? Was Stansbury. Stansbury. Yeah. So he, you know, he goes down the middle of ways, everybody gets the front, throws the flag. And I'm so nervous. I just freaking dump the clutch, just come off, the, come on and take off. Cause it's two rows of two. I think he's did. I just wheelie. And, and, and we really had to go like 10 feet and to make a left-hand turn. Well, I wheelie and I go straight. So everybody's turning. I'm going straight doing a wheelie. I finally have the thing down to go and there's nowhere to go to everybody goes the inside and there's nowhere for me to go into that inside lane. So I'm like, well, I'm going outside. So I go around the outside and where it meets back together, I come back. I'm like in like second or third. And I'm like, I'm like, I made up ground. Like that outside line's way faster. So we come around the second lap. I freaking go the outside line and, and it was, it was way faster. I came around in the lead, you know, my fourth Mickey's ever I'm leading the main event I think Doug figured out pretty quick because I think Doug got second because Doug, then Doug was behind me, but Doug was, he Doug was and I was on your rear tires. Oh, he was right there the whole race. Like if I would have screwed up, he would have passed me. I mean, he never got to where he showed me a wheel, but he was there. Like he was just waiting for me to screw up. And somehow I didn't, I was pumped up. Like you wouldn't like there was no tomorrow. But somehow I didn't make any mistakes, rode the whole race and ended up winning Mickey's as my, my fourth, fourth Mickey's ever. And I just barely turned 16, you know? So that was like, that was huge. You know, for me, that was like, like I just won, you know, like an ATV national or something, you know, and my, basically my fourth premier pro fourth, fourth race as a pro, you know, other than a local race, I just won the thing. So that was, that was really awesome. You know, I mean, I think, we always kind of stood out at the Mickey's cause we were on Suzuki, but that, I think when I, when I won that race, it, you know, then it was like, people kind of knew who I was in, or knew who I was more than at that point, you know? 
So that, that was, you know, and the funniest part about that whole deal was we win that race, go to the next race and William Reading comes over and he's, he's talking to us, you know, talking about the shocks and whatnot. And he goes and pushes on the back of my bike. And he's like, he's like, what, what the heck is wrong with this thing? I'm like, what do you mean what's wrong with this thing? He's like, there's something wrong in this linkage or no linkage is a no link. There's like, there's something wrong in the pivot on this thing. He starts messing with it. And I didn't know any better, but the thing was so screwed up from JP making it that if you tighten down the axle, the, the motor nut or the front pivot or the front pivot bolt on the swing arm, you tighten it down and it just bound up. I had it so tight that the back end, the back, there was suspension wing really work on the thing. And I've been riding that thing like that for a year. Just, <laughs> just bound up, just super tight on the thing, you know. So I mean, we still didn't know setup at all. We just went and raced, you know, but it was a good time, you know. Mickey's I wish, you know, Mickey's Mickey's were an awesome deal, you know. Then when Clear Channel or Pace put on those races, you know, after that for a few years, that was probably the most fun, the the best racing for kind of I, I feel for our sport almost at the time because there was you I mean, even though it was everybody's like, oh, you're a sideshow the monster trucks or whatever you know, uh, when it came into pace, but you were in front of people, there was people there, there's people walking around, yep. you know, I mean, the only thing that's somewhat comparable these days for ATV racing is, or, or is comparable is, um, GCC, you know, GCC, they get, you know, five to 20,000 people, depending on the venue, show up to spectate, but ATV motocross, you know, unfortunately it's not there. We all wish it would be, but it's not, but back then the Mickey's was awesome. You know, that was, I mean, I mean, you were there, you know, I mean, that was, that was like the pinnacle to me of ATV racing was going to Mickey's and all that stuff with all the people there. I could go back, you know, because you didn't tear equipment up. Yeah. Uh, it, it lasted longer. The, the actual cost of racing was a little less, you know, they, they, they put a, a lock on what you could and couldn't do with fuel, with motor size, you know, and they policed it well. And, you know, it gave everybody a platform so that, you know, the, the five or six different engine builders and the two or three different chassis guys, you, you were all pretty level. I mean, you might be running so-and-so's motor and someone's size suspension and somebody else's chassis, but at the end of the day, you know, nobody was dominant. Everybody was good. Yeah. The, the, only, the, the only person I remember dominating really well was uh, Greg Stewart, but he just, Greg would go out and kick everybody's ass, be the fastest guy in qualifying. They, I mean, they would show up with a qualifying setup, you know, and then, it was, you'd be looking, what are they doing? You go out and then just smoke everybody, you know, the last couple of years in Mickey's, but then like it just that one year, he should have had that thing and just had some bad luck. I mean, just DNFs in a row. Yeah. You know, I mean, that the funny part is, you know, I, I still kind of give Tyson Lieber some grief over it because Tyson is the one that he ran into at Vegas and got locked up with it, lost him that one, I think, or one of them. You know, then I think he had a counter shaft sprocket come off in another one or something. Two counter shafts? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just some bad luck, but I mean, Greg that year was, Greg was so dominant that year other than, other than his problems, you know, but I mean, he was, you know, that time him and him and Jimmy, you know, his mechanic, they were, they were on it. I mean, they seemed like they just, 
that's what they lived and breathed and they were out there doing everything they could. I mean, it's like, to me, I felt like they were on almost another level, but it just had some issues. Old man Stewart was pretty smart, dude. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. He came up with some crazy stuff. I mean, like those hubs and those titanium hubs and stuff and, you know, just different things that, you know, people, other people didn't have or didn't think of, or, you know, he would develop, you know? So. I think they had resources and would spend money in places that, that the other people wouldn't Yeah, you know, like us, we were a engine company and, and it was, it was a business. Um, the racing was a business. It wasn't a hobby. It was, you know, you raced was what you had. Uh, you developed the portions you need. And we were an engine company. We weren't necessarily a chassis company. Uh, we worked with chassis companies, but, uh, you know, we weren't developing the chassis parts. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, like I've heard Mark Lager tell the story a couple of times. I mean, he might be some, somebody you want to interview too, is just about how he got everything and his whole, you know, development of his chassis and how he started building stuff for JP and, you know, came up with the the spindles and all that stuff. I mean, I'm sure him and him and Doug and, you know, along with your area with Mike, but you know, I mean, there is some stuff, you know, that like Stewart's just, you know, when they met Mark, like, Hey, you know, can you build us this like this? And we want to do this. And Mark went, uh, and figured it out, you know, and like build what they wanted, but it was, you know, Stewart's were the ones that kind of came up with, this is what we want, you know, and Mark figured it out, you know, on, on some of that pro, on some of that pro track stuff back in the day, you know, develop it. But yeah, I mean, it's, those guys, those guys were awesome. I mean, <clears throat> they helped me out a little bit. Um, Stewart's did a little bit last, the last year I raced Mickey's and, um, when, when crash was, you know, before he used to, I think when he started custom access, right. Um, you know, we ran some of their stuff that year and it worked really good. Greg had, you know, they did a lot of testing, had some really good shocks and, you know, we, we tried some stuff out and it worked really well for us that year. We switched to some of that stuff. I liked watching Doug roll and, and, and him draw in the dirt, you know, and figuring out leverage ratios and spring rates and valving when we're out testing the Lobos and, and, you know, they're, they're each drawing their own picture in the dirt. And then they would come up with the exact same answer, you know, five or 10 seconds apart from one another. And they would make the adjustments to the bike and, you know, Travis or whoever the rider was at the time would go out and ride it and come back and give them feedback. And sometimes they'd have to go back and, and do some more drawing in the dirt, you know, to, to change it because it didn't work. And then other times they'd be like, okay. And then that would send, send them off in another direction. And the development was, I really enjoyed that portion. I didn't, I wasn't close enough to it to get more of the education. Uh, because I was still having to, you know, take shocks on and off and change the tires. And, you know, I wasn't the, I wasn't in the middle of it like Lauren and was with all of those guys. If it was now I'd be the one over there trying to, to help them, you know, and figure it out so that we could be, uh, making the adjustments necessary. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's funny because like you said earlier, like, you know, we, we, you, you and I, like, we were never like, I, I never, I never wrote for Duncan. So I mean, I was never under your guys' umbrella, but like, we kind of had similar paths at similar times, you know, and we were always kind of close. We knew each other, we talk and things, but 
you know, the, the dunk and roll guys were kind of in this kind of in their group. And then I was kind of over there with the, you know, Lager kind of group with those people. And then, you know, Mike kind of started his kind of group of people with Walsh, you know, kind of everybody had their own little groups, but like talking about those guys, like, I mean, same thing. Like I'd be at Wayne Radians at PEP to one o'clock in the morning and Wayne's, Wayne's trying to explain to me how shocks work, you know, and round off numbers. I'm just like, Wayne, I, I, I want to go home. <laughs> I, I can't count how many times I've fallen asleep on his, on his bench my head on his bench, you know, like he's throwing me shocks at two o'clock in the morning, you know, I'm trying to get a bike done or something. You know, I mean, those, those guys, you know, I mean, I've been around Doug a lot or not a lot, but I've been around Doug quite a bit more the last 10 years than I was when I raced, but you know, seeing how Doug works, Doug's, Doug's a super smart guy, man. I mean, he's stuff that he, he rattles off his head. I, I can't believe, you know, I mean, William Reed falls right around. Right. I think it's just that, you have to have that mentality for the shocks. I mean, that's what those guys do. I mean, they deal with it so much and that's why they excel. You know, that's why they're so good at their game or craft. When, when the Oh five or Oh four Honda came out and I don't know if you ever rode one or spent much time on one and they, the, the rear end didn't work that well. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to figure out we're at Glen Helen, the first round, and they're trying to figure out how to make the shock. And, and Martin from Elka is sitting in our trailer with Doug and they're sitting in the booth trying to figure out how to change the valving and the spring rate and the shock to get it to work better. You know, cause it's not the only guy they have. Doug's not the only guy they have, you know, yeah. they have four or five guys there that, that all need this, this change. And I remember Martin had the calculator pushing the button that the, the measure, the, the dimensions in to come up with the ratio they needed and Doug's telling him what ratio they need before he can figure, figure out calculating it on the calculator. And he looks up at me and he turns the calculator around and it's the, it's the size that Doug had already told him. <laughs> and I'm just, I just smiled. Great. <laughs> I was lost 10 minutes ago, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just make it better. Just make it better. We just want to do better. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, those guys, I mean, that was, you know, that, that JP bike I had, I mean, that thing was, I think it was horrible. <laughs> Looking back, it was horrible. I mean, it was better than the stock LT, but it was horrible. And we go to that, I think I was after San Diego or might've been at the first race that year. We didn't uh, go in those two, those couple two races here before we never heard of Lager really. I think that's kind of when he separated himself from, from JP um, and started doing his own thing. And that's when Doug moved down there. And that's when we first heard of Mark. We showed up at that, I think that, that year, 93 at, at um, Mickey's and, you know, Mark, I think Mark was a sponsor of Mickey's that year, maybe because I think he had that Grum truck and trailer and had a, frame on display and everything. That's when everybody started really trying to, you know, everybody started buying all that Lager stuff and ProTrack started getting really big. I think it was like 94, you know, and he's like, Oh yeah, I can make an, I, I make an LT250, you know, and I, I remember going to tell my parents, he's like, like, Hey, we need to get one of these Lager bikes. And they're like, what do you mean? We just, we got a GP bike. It's like, good. I'm like, no, go over and look at that thing, you know, and Stuart was running it. And I think Dan was running them then too, or starting to, starting to run the bikes. and by the end of 93, 
we had a we had a LT two fifty from Mark ordered for ninety four. So I ended up <clears throat> we ended up building that bike for ninety four, and then raced Mickey's in ninety four, and then somehow or another. It's kind of like, all right, we're doing Mickey's. And then everybody's talking about going to nationals, you know, and Gary raced Mickey's. I think I can't remember what year Gary won the Mickey's. I think it was 93 or 94, somewhere in there. You know, and Gary been winning all the nationals. And it was 93. Yeah. So like, you know, we need to, and so 94 rolled around, like we need to go to some nationals. Like we need to go see what this is about, you know, and kind of in the 94, sorry, or in, 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 and then in 94, before, like, yeah, let's go race some nationals, you know, I'm like, what's the best way for us to go do them, you know, and at the time it was, you know, GNC and it was TT and motocross, you know, they're running, I think they're running at the time they're running five and five, five TTs, five motocrosses. Yep. And we're like, well, what's the best way for us to go back there and get as much racing as we can without, without spending a bunch of time and a bunch of money. And what we ended up coming up with was that year, Texas, Tyler, Texas, they had a double header. They had a TT, I think it was Thursday, Friday, and they had a motocross Saturday, Sunday. And Loretta's was always a double header as well. So we figured out we'd run Tyler, Texas, which was the closest one. And then we go run Loretta's at the end of the year. So that year in 94, I got to race basically four nationals, two TTs and two motocrosses. And we took that, we took that JP bike. Um, Mark kind of reworked it. We put a legger front end on it and then used it for a TT bike. And then we had that LT250 we raced for the motocross. So 94, I actually got to go run four nationals that year, but in two weekends. And the, when I went and raced Texas, <clears throat> we were starting to become pretty good friends with Mark. And he's like, he's like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go. And like, well, can you haul our bike? Cause he was going to go that one race. He's like, yeah, I'll haul your bike. And he was like, well, it was the summer I was going to school or anything. So I was like, Hey, can I go with you? And he's like, sure. So I actually rode with Mark to Texas that year. And I think we drove his dually, I think, and pulled the Grum trailer. And it was probably the most scariest trip I've ever been passenger on. <laughs> he drove, he would wait till anytime a truck passed him, a semi truck, he was all about fuel mileage and pit stops. So anytime, if anytime a semi truck could pass him, he'd pull him behind the semi truck and follow that guy, whoever's going the fastest. Well, he, he was basically in a phone, the fastest semi truck, probably going east or west, whatever way we were going and drafting off them. So we couldn't even see their taillights. He was like inches away from their back bumper. And this is the middle of the summer and it's burning hot. And he's like, we got to get better gas mounts. So no AC, we have the windows down. He's just drafting these semi trucks. And I'm just like, I'm going to die on the way here. <laughs> and then we'd stop at gas and he'd be like, okay, here's 10 bucks. You go in, you get the food. I'm going to fuel. If you're not here, I'm done fueling with the food. I'm leaving without you. <laughs> so I'd have to run in and get the food and go to the bathroom or whatever, run back out. And we'd get back in the truck and we'd haul ass because he was just like, we're getting there as quick as we can. Uh, and I just, I really shocked. I was like, oh my gosh, this is an experience. You know, I'm, first national I go to and I'm going to get killed on the way there riding with this guy, you know, but went to that race and it was so hot. And I think we, and then Ron Baker from PEP, I think that might've been one of the last times you might ever raced national. He came and rode, yeah, the LT 500 and he rode, I think TT only, but he was there. We took his bike too in the trailer 
Um, but it was, it was miserably hot. Like it was one of the hottest, one of the hotter races I've ever been to for sure. My first race. And that was, I didn't do worth the crap. I wasn't ready for the heat. Like I just died on the motocross track and I think I might've got like 15th or something. And, you know, and that, and that was kind of, it was a totally different world for me going from racing local races and then going to race Mickey's which Mickey's I think kind of kept people a little more closer because the track wasn't as technical. The races weren't as long and then going to a national and really seeing the difference between a local pro and a national pro. Cause like the Mickey's I could run pretty good. The Mickey's you know, 10th or maybe a little better. Mickey's pretty commonly in like 94 hours are kind of right in that area. And then we go to, we go to nationals and it was just like, 20 minute motos, which, I mean, we were doing at home, you know, at local races, but the intensity level was so different. Like it was just, I went, you know, I went to the first race and like, I ride pro at local, you know, I was right pro here. I mean, I never thought about riding pro am, you know, I'm like, I'm a pro. I want to make it y'all go here and ride pro. And I just got my butt handed to me. Just <laughs> horrible. I mean, it was like, it was a, it was a, eye-opening experience, you know, I was, so 94, I was 16, 17 years old, you know, going to race national. And I was like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? You know, so the first, that first year in 94 at the, at the races, it was, it was a real big eye-opening, you know, going to Texas, burning hot. Then you go to Loretta Lynn's, which is typically the worst humidity race there is, you know, and I'm a kid, yeah. from, kid from Washington state where it's, rains all the time you know it's i mean if it gets hot it's 85 or 90 you know so it's not hot there's no i mean there's no humidity hardly at all i mean there's humidity but not like that you know so it's just like it was a big big eye-opening you know and and after after lorez that year i was still riding that i was still riding that lt 50 and you know henson was hanging out with layer quite a bit because because layers you know gary stuff and, you know, and at the time, I'm not sure who was hauling Gary's, I think Goodman's might've been hauling Gary's stuff around, but, um, or maybe there was someone else hauling Gary's stuff around. Cause Gary, Gary pretty much had someone haul stuff around him and Wayne would show up, prep the bike, race the bike, kind of prep it afterwards. And then they might fly in here and there and do some testing, but they did a lot of testing at home and bring stuff, but they didn't have a truck and trailer you know, Gary didn't have a factory rig or a box fan like that. It was just kind of like who can haul my stuff and I'll race out of your, out of your deal. Well, end of the year, it kind of was like, well, Wayne comes up to us and is like, Hey, you know, I'll, I'll help you guys out for 95. Um, but a couple of things, cause Wayne was like kind of like Gary's mechanic and, you know, Wayne was real good at setups and, you know, get everything figured out. And we kind of got to know him a little bit and he was like, well, I'll help you guys out. But, part of me helping you guys out is you guys have to switch to a Honda. Like you guys need to go to the art. I can't help you out on the Suzuki. Like nobody's riding Suzuki. You're the only idiot guy here on Suzuki. You need to get rid of this like fast. (laughs) (laughs) So so he's like, I'll I'll help you guys out. Um, But part of the deal too is part of the deal too is we need to get Gary's bikes to the, to the, to the East coast for nationals. And and kind of haul around a little bit. So what ended up happening is Gary had this little, I think he borrowed it from somebody, a little high point trailer. So we put his bike in this little high point trailer. 
the next year for 95 and towed it behind our box van. And we towed the trailer. I think we were towing the trailer to our, to the race. And then he would unload it. And then they would basically pit out of Goodman's area with Goodman's and we keep all of our stuff at Goodman's house. So 95, I rode a Honda. We were hauling Gary stuff around, but Gary was pinned with Goodman's and we were kind of hanging out with Goodman's because we kind of left our stuff at Goodman's. So I'd stayed at Harold's quite a bit that year and rode with Harold and hung out with Harold, you know, because Harold, I think that year was still riding Pro-Am, I think that year. I don't think he was quite a pro yet. So we did that for, I think, 95. I think that was Gary's last year, I think. It was 95, if I'm correct? I can't remember. I don't remember Gary's last year. Yeah, I think it might have been 95 that we did that. But yeah, that was that was a real that was a big change for me for sure. You know, going going from a LT250 to a 250R, you know, and then and then Wayne was helping me out quite a bit um, with setup and bike stuff, you know. So basically I was kind of getting pretty much somewhat Gary's setup or close to it. And then Carol and I had some pretty good stuff that Wayne was, Wayne was kind of helping us out with some things that were really good. The bike ran really good that year. Um, you know, so that, that was, that was a definitely good year. And then also Gary, I went and stayed with Gary a few times that year. Um, and he did some riding coach stuff with me, really helped me out a lot um, with just my riding in general and really got his really got experience really got to experience Gary's mental technique and his thought process. You know, he really, really helped me out, um, walking me through, um, when I came down, stayed with him a couple of times, a couple of weeks, just we go ride and just how plan, planning ahead, thinking ahead on the track and observing what's going on, you know, and just kind of really got to see all that knowledge he had, you know, or has just how he thought. And that, that really helped me a lot for my, my riding and the way I rode on the track and the way I thought about things on the track, you know, from learning from Gary that year, that, that was, that was a big change in my, in my program, you know, and also Wayne helping too. You know? He's, I would have to say for me, Gary Denton, when I was becoming a, a mechanic and, and just breaking into the world, uh, you know, I knew of, but I didn't know. And when he walked up to the trailer and talking to Lauren and Marty and, uh, you know, some of the other guys and, and sticks his hand out, Hey, I'm Gary Denton. Pleasure to meet you. You know, and from that day on every time I saw that guy, he said, hi and shook my hand. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, I'm nobody. And this is the, this is the champ, you know, this is the guy. And, and he's, you know, shaking my hand and, and treating me like I'm somebody. And I just, I think that that's one of the things that stuck with me. You know, always treat the guy that's beneath you better than you treat anyone else. Because one day you're going to look up and there he is. Yeah. No, I mean, Gary, Gary was, I mean, Gary is, or was at the track. He was, one of the most personable people talked to everybody, knew everybody, one of the most fun people to be around with. And I mean, he didn't care who you were. I mean, he talked to everybody. He loved everybody at the track and was always joking, always joking, you know, always, always joking, always fishing, you know, and he, he was, he definitely, you know, he definitely made being at the track a good experience, no matter who you were, if you ran into him. I mean, he, 
you didn't, you, like you said, he didn't care who you were. If you, if you walked in the bathroom or something and see you work on something and stop and talk to the guy and the whole guys, they could just change the whole guy, whole, the guy's whole life almost, you know, Gary didn't think twice about it. Gary's just talking to some guy, you know, yep. and the guy's like, Oh my God, Gary didn't stop talk to me. You know, exactly. You know, exactly. So, I mean, he was, he was awesome. I mean, for sure. At the track. I mean, it was awesome. Awesome guy. He still, he still is a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, some I, of the stories and some of the things that he tells, um, you know, that went on behind the scenes that nobody knows about. Uh, pretty awesome stuff. Yeah. I, I actually haven't talked to Gary in a few years. Like I follow on, on Instagram a little bit, you know, and see what's going on, but I haven't, you know, I haven't talked to him too much. I mean, that was, you know, that was probably one of my, my more memorable experiences was, you know, going down there, hanging out with him for a week, riding with him, you know, living at his house. Like when he started Denton racing, like I was there when he started Denton racing and I was like, Hey, I was, you know, I, I think we were paying him for me staying there, but then he puts me to work, you know, as I'm there putting steering dampers together for him, you know, so I'm like, wait, so I'm here hanging out getting riding lessons and coaching and you're making me work, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, I got to hang out with him and Donna and Scotty, you know, with the family and everything. So that was, that was a real, real fun experience. And, you know, in my racing career to look back on, you know, see, I, I got to go hang out with Gary for, you know, a couple of weeks here and there and do, do a little bit of training and stuff. You know, I mean, he probably think twice about it. He was just probably like, Oh, you just get something, you know, I didn't think too much about it. But for me, it was, it was a cool experience. So the, for the knowledge I got out of it. I, I hope that we all have those moments, you know, where we help somebody and they, and they don't even, you, we don't even realize how much you, you're helping them. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember this. I don't even remember what race it was. You were riding a hybrid, a four stroke hybrid, and you're in line getting ready to go out. And I walked up and I was just talking to you and you were this or saying this or saying that. And I go, Whoa, Hey dude, relax. You got this. This thing's freaking great. You know, it's got great horsepower. You're having a good time with it. you dude, you qualified. Well, what's your problem? Go and ride the thing. And I didn't watch the race. I was back in the pits. You won, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was, uh, the first time that you had won on that particular machine. Right. Anaheim, I think. I think it was. I think it was Anaheim. And, and you just, you had a great day and a, and a great, uh, you know, ride and everything. You know, you gave me a hat tip at the end of the night, you know, and I appreciated that. You know I mean? Because you were a fastest guy the whole, the whole weekend. You just didn't yeah. realize it. You just didn't know. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you don't know it until, until you're out there and then you feel it, you know, but off the track, you don't know it sometimes, you know, and you get out there and then it just clicks. Well, that bike was better for its time yeah. than anything else anybody else had. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, we, we raced the Hondas for a couple of years. Um, and then I went to work for Mark. In, in Mark, I went to work for Mark in 90, January 97. And I went down to work for Mark and I bought a, I had a, <clears throat> I had a 96 CR 250 and I sold it right before I moved. And I was riding the aluminum frame CR, CR 250s came out in 97. And I bought one of those right before I moved. And I rode that thing about three times. And that 96 was so good. And I got that 97 and that thing was the biggest piece of junk. 
Like that frame was so stiff and wouldn't turn. It was horrible. And I kind of quit riding it because I was just like, I can't ride this. And it's so bad. And then, you know, Doug Henry came out with that, that 400. And then they released that 400. And everybody's talking about how good it is, how good it is, and all this and that. And I'm like, man, this CRT 50 I have is freaking horrible. Like, I got to get rid of this thing. So I'm like, every time with this four strokes, I'm like, I'm going to go buy one of those things. Like, get rid of this. So I went down to, I think I called around the only place that had one, I think it was Motor World El Cajon. And I went down to Motor World El Cajon, traded in my CRT 50, bought that 400. And I, and they're like, do you want to show you? They're like, do you want us to show you how to start the thing? I'm like, no, nah, I got it. It has decompression at least. You just pull it or something and kick it. It starts right up, you know, no big deal. So I took the thing, never started. I go back to, I go back to Mark's shop where I'm living in the house or above the shop. I tried to start that thing for about an hour and a half. And I think Chris Fristo might've been there. And we're trying to start that thing and start that thing and start that thing. And we could not figure that thing out. Finally, I think we got it started. And I went and started riding that thing. And I'm like, this thing is pretty awesome. Like at the time we were, st- we were just starting to, we were, when did we start doing three thirties, like 96, I think 97, like started doing three thirty cylinders. Something like you know? that. Yeah. And I mean, I've been riding dirt bike too. So I kind of knew, kind of knew, you know, from a 252 stroke to a 332 stroke, kind of what the difference was like in the power. And then I had this 252 stroke dirt bike. And then I got this 400 four stroke dirt bike and I went and rode it. And I'm like, Oh my God, this thing is like, it's a bitch to start, but it, when it runs, it's, it runs, it's, it has torque. It's, you know, it, it's nice. It, you don't, you know, you're not a squirrel on it. It helps you. It just, it runs better, runs a little better. It's easier to ride. You know, when I start talking to Mark, I'm like, and Mark was building like 300 EX chassis too and stuff like that. You know, and Tom Miller was putting those big motors, 350 motors and all that stuff in them. And so there was already kind of that four stroke somewhat market at the nationals. And, you know, this thing's water cooled. And I'm like, Mark, maybe you can shove this thing in a, in a quad this motor. And he's like, it's like, I don't see why not. And he's like, he's like, is it good? I'm like, yeah, it's good. And I'm like, you know, we're reading the rules and like, everything's like, you can, there's the rules are like, you can run a, like, I think I can't remember what size was, but you could run that four stroke in a 250 class, you know, like it's legal. We can run it at the nationals or we can run it, you know, at stadium races at the time. We're like, we can run it there. Cause I think, I think steam races, you can run at three thirty. So it was like, let's build this thing, you know? I'm like, so like, okay, so we, we spent, I mean, he spent a good month and a half or two months building the thing. We assembled it. It was a raw frame. Um, I went out to the very first quad cross race they ever had at Glen Helen on the back. And they had it on the back track. The very first, it was like, so it had to be fall of 98 or, or Jan- January, like even somewhere between November to January of 97 or sorry, 98, 99. Cause that bike came out in 98 and this, and we were going into the 99 season. So Mark built this thing. And at the time I was doing stuff with Curtis and I took it to Curtis and he built an air boot, built a pipe and some stuff for it. And we showed that very first quad cross race. And I rode that thing and Earhart was there. And I think he might've been riding for Putman at the time. I'm not hundred percent sure. But Earhart was going pretty good at the time. You know, he was kind of making his comeback. 
for stadium races and he was going pretty good. And I ran him down and passed him on that thing. And I'm like, this thing's good. Like, this is going to change some stuff. Like it's pretty awesome. You know, in the time, nobody else had done one yet in quad. And then we showed up at that first, took it all apart. Like some people knew about it at the race and amazing guys kind of found out about it. And so we tore it all apart because we, 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 I rode a raw at that race and it was just like, it was a bastard. It had like red plastic on the front, white in the back, blue tank. I mean, just kind of throwing parts on it, kind of not making it real, real fancy. So we wanted to make sure everything was on it, you know, because it was brand new. So didn't have to weld on it. So the frame was raw. So we went tore the whole thing apart, cleaned it up real nice, chromed everything, powder coated it, you know, got some graphics to look kind of graphics kind of look like factory graphics put on it. Um, ended up shooting it for the magazine for dirt wheels and they put it on the cover, I believe dirt wheels. And we showed up at the first stadium race that year and we had it undercover and everybody's kind of, kind of rumblings about it. I mean, there's no internet really too much. So really hadn't got out, no social media, you know, and we covered it up at the race. People were kind of trying to keep people under the cover and stuff and went and rode that first race. And I think I went a lap or two in the main event and I stole it and then I couldn't get the thing started. And I got lapped. So I think it was just a bitch to start. I mean, those first ones, the current Raiders were so set up so bad in them with the hot start knob, trying to figure it out. I still hadn't got figured out kicking it that well. I had to have a flip up seat on it. So to flip it up to start it. So it had, I mean, just, we hadn't, we hadn't wrote it enough or written it enough to get kind of all the bugs worked out of it. Right. And so it took a couple of races. And then like you're saying, I went to, we, I think we ran one other race. I think I got like a sixth and I went to Anaheim and finally had enough time on that bike that went to Anaheim and like, I was comfortable on it. It was set up real well. We had it running really good. Kind of had some carburetor issues figured out on it and everything. And went to Anaheim and I think I came from like fifth or sixth and, you know, past Travis, past Goodman, past a few people. And, you know, pretty much, you know, passed everybody and we kind of ran away for a little bit of that race. And it was, you know, then everybody, I think everybody was kind of unsure about it. And then when they saw that race, they were like, I think Timmy was like, okay, yeah, we need one of those. I think he ordered one right away. And then by that time, I think Walsh was building one too. So I think Walsh built one, I think for maybe Harold or somebody. And, and Mark, I think Mark built one for Timmy too. So yeah, that was, that was the start of the whole high performance four stroke hybrid was probably my fault a little bit, but I kind of feel like it was going to happen regardless. It, it, <laughs> it was because, you know, you know, I believe that the four strokes extended the careers of more than one rider. Yeah. They're easier to ride, easier to hold on to, you know, you don't have uh, the same vibration issues. Um, and then the factories were going to go four stroke anyways yeah. with that, with the Yamaha that came out and, well, the Z 400 that came out and then the Yamaha that came out. So, yeah. well, I mean, like I would go to Glen Helen, you know, cause I, you know, right. I mean, when I moved to California and I ended up, you know, I mean, you guys, you guys, uh, I think did Steve Owens and stuff too. And, you know, Steve was a, you know, multi-time speedway champion and he ended up, um, you know, I kind of, I met him from racing and race and the Mickey's and stuff. And he had a little plot of land. I think you guys actually went there and tested. They had an acre next to his house that he had this little tiny motocross arena cross track on and a little tiny speedway pad on it too. Cause he was a speedway guy. 
you know, and we go and we go over there and, and go ride all the time and stuff. And, and so I got the, and his, his boy, Richie was into motorcycles a lot. So he was racing motocross and stuff. And it was kind of, kind of up and coming pro and knew some of the local pros and they would come over and ride and stuff. So I met, I met a few of the local pros and we go out to Glen Helen and I knew these guys. So they, they knew me. So they knew, you know, I, I wasn't going to take them out or I wasn't there to screw with them. So we, on practice, practice days at Glen Helen, they let the dirt bikes and quads go together. And some of these local pros, we would just battle. Like I would just be an inch off these guys wheel, like Sean Hamlin at the time that I think he rode for Suzuki. Like we'd be out there and, and I just, be, I'd be pushing Sean around the track on, you know, on a two, on a two fifty two stroke, just wide open, wrung out, just pushing around the track, you know, and he'd get away from me a couple sections. I catch him back in a couple sections and stuff. So we were always kind of the two fifty two strokes and the, and the quads were fairly close. And then when we got the three thirties, we had no problem. Like two fifty was wide open. Hang, trying to hang out with those guys. And we got the three thirties and then you can hang out with those guys pretty easy when they're, when they're on a 252 stroke and we're on a, we're on a 332 stroke. We're pretty close. Well, then we get this four stroke and then it was like up, it, it upped it a little bit more. Like it was the same as a 252 stroke, but maybe a little bit better, but it was, you could ride it in the hard pack a little better. And it was just, a, it was a better bike. So when we went to that four stroke, it was like, yeah, this thing's better than that two stroke. And you know, it's funny because at the time it seemed like we were it seemed like everybody was running Hondas forever. It seemed like Hondas were around for 30 years. Like 250Rs were like the way to go. Everybody had them. They're everywhere. And I look back now and it's like that bike only went what 12 years? I mean, from 86 to 86 to basically. 2000 that bike pretty much almost became obsolete so 14 years um 2003 was was the end yeah because but, the 400 came out in 03 so you're 17 years and right and and then look at how far we are now from the 250rs i mean we're we're 11 years into a yzfr now you know and, i mean but, yeah and, i mean the rest of the field kind of has just dropped off. You know, I know for a fact, Honda has a bike that can compete, but the yeah. penny, the, the guys that pinch the pennies won't let it drop. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we've been, we've all been hearing that for years. Oh, it's coming next year. It's coming next year. Yeah. It ain't coming. Nope. But it, it ain't coming, you know, but it's funny. Cause back then, I mean, the Honda seemed like it was around forever. And to me, like after riding, I just have riding that four stroke, but it took a couple of years to refine that four stroke to like, it was like, okay, yeah, this seems way better for me realizing it, that it's way better than that two stroke. But at the time, the Honda seemed like it was out forever. I mean, like they had made one for so many years and we're still racing those things. I mean, if I have not heard anything that Yamaha's quitting building bikes, all I've heard is that forecast for the next three or four years are still going to keep building them. But if they ever quit building them based off the 250Rs, I mean, there's, we ran a 250R for how many years after they quit manufacturing them? I mean, well, the Yamaha R will be the, unless another factory comes out with a bike, it will be the bike. Yeah. It will be the chassis. And even based on what I do all the time, that Yamaha R, yeah. um, it's pretty damn durable. Yeah. Oh, I, I have one now and it's, you know, I don't ride it a bunch, but I mean, it's a great bike. I mean, 
you gotta, I mean, I always like, Oh man, I wish I, I wish it was easy to 250R, but there's not fuel injection. There's not a battery. There's not a, I mean, you got some things that take up more room. So you have to have that stuff, but it, that, that R now is with the, with the quick connect clips, the plastic comes off it, the tank comes off it quick. It's, it's really easy to work on. I mean, I mean, I kind of got in the habit because of my dad, you know, when you wash something, wash it good. So I try to do the best I can. So like when you go to wash it, it's like pull the plastic off. It takes two minutes, pull the plastic off. It comes right off. You wash the thing awesome. You know, compared to, you know, I mean, I haven't, I, I wrenched for Alex Theodore in 2016, I think it was at nationals and he was riding a Honda. I hated working on that thing. I hated it. Like it. I, I don't know why I just never got into the TRX 450 stuff, but like pulling the plastic off of it was just, to me, it was a nightmare. Like this new Yamaha is so nice to work on compared to a Honda for me. I don't know why, but I'm just like, I, I've ridden one a couple of times. I'm just not, a, I'm not a Honda TRX 450 guy at all. At all. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. I'll forgive you. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, I understand the plastic thing, yeah. but as far as pulling a motor and putting a motor in the Honda is way easier. Yeah. But I've, I've had a, I've had a YFZR. Let's see. I had one first year. I got one. I think it was 13. I haven't yet to pull a bottom end out of one yet. Oh, I have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I've gone through, I've not gone through, I've, I've sold a couple and got a, got a new one, but I don't put a ton of hours on them, but I've never done a bottom end in one. So I've never had to pull the bottom end down. I had to do two 2020s uh, at the end of 2020. Brand new bikes. Brand new. Uh, because of mistakes that people had made, but still. Yeah. But I, mean, know, I, I think the Yamaha tranny. Oh. Gosh, that's a, it's a good training They're They're 14 up clutch assemblies, horrible, but, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's why, why Henson's in business, not only them, it's everybody else. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> pull that thing out, throw Henson in it. I mean, that's it's been, Henson's been the way to go forever. I mean, thing works and there's a reason why. Exactly. But yeah, they do. yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that, that are though, that thing's an amazing bike and for sure. I mean, Looking back on everything now, I mean, the four strokes, you know, at the time, at the time were kind of, we, I mean, we were, we were riding those two strokes as due to two strokes. I feel at the time when that, when that, when we built that 400, that 252 stroke, I could not ride that thing faster. It was, I felt like at Glen Helen, it was wide open the whole time, never lift and just slip the clutch of the turn a little bit, slow down or hit the brake. And that's it. Other than that, it was, it was on hundred percent or it was off. It was just, it didn't, it didn't like now the bikes are so fast. You don't, you know, you have to use throttle control. Those things were just wide open at the end. I mean, I don't know if it was the chassis got so good. The shocks got so good, but the motors, the motors were faster than they, I mean, they progressed, but they just, I think the chassis and shocks outdid the motors. I felt like at the end of the 250R, like it was just. I believe your chassis, your stock Yamaha chassis, your stock Honda chassis limits the amount of work that can be done, uh, or we haven't evolved uh, to a, to a, 
uh, another level yet. But, but I mean, what, what were the what were the horsepower numbers you were you guys were getting on two, on two strokes compared to a four stroke though? I mean, well, actual numbers or fake numbers? You know, <laughs> where, 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 who's whose number are you going to use? Who's Dino rig is it? Uh, yeah, depend whose dyno we're going to use. Who's yeah. who's who's. But I mean, but I mean, typically, if you're running one of your guys, you're making, less, you're making less horsepower in a two-stroke, but not much. And your biggest problem is, is the two-strokes don't get straight-ahead drive like a four-stroke. Yeah, you know, the, the four-stroke will get traction, but a two-stroke never will. So if you made equal horsepower in a two-stroke, you got to you got to get it to stick. And it never did. It never does. Cause when you come out of the turn with less horsepower on a four stroke, you drive away from the two stroke yeah. because the wheels are spinning and, and you're not grabbing traction. Yeah. I mean, I, I Walsh built a, well, I can't remember. I can't remember what year it was now. Everything blends together. A few years ago, Walsh built a LTR with a 500 in it and built a, LTR with a CRF 450 in it. And we did a magazine shootout on them. And I rode the LT 500 at Daytona Supercross. You that bike did a little work for him. What's that? You did a little work for him on that. Yeah. But I mean, I, I rode those bikes there and I rode that one bike there. And that LT 500 was, I mean, you've ridden LT 500s. I've, I've ridden one, one other time, but it was super long ago at Dana Blue Motocross at National, but that thing was, it had so much power. It was so much fun to ride. And then put in a, in a Walsh LTR chassis. It was like, it was like the best of every world. Almost. I felt like it was awesome. It was like, well, you're, so talking cool. about a, you're talking about a big bore two stroke, big bore two stroke, ton of bottom in. Yeah. And, and it had a counterbalancer in there. Yes. So the vibration is less. Yep. So it's almost four strokey. Uh-huh. And, and yeah, they're just ungodly fast. I it mean, was like the track wasn't big enough to get the thing up and going, but the straightaway that was long straightaway, like it, the class I raced in, I think I rode like plus 30 or something. And, but the guys on 450s, I was pulling them like, like they were going backwards. It was crazy how fast that bike was and how good it ran. Like, so I, I came home and found a rolling chassis, found a 500 torn apart. And I took it to Mark's and Mark put the motor in it, but I'm still trying to get the thing built. <laughs> but my goal is to have one of those built. I used to have a stock chassis here, hopefully soon so I can ride it one day. But there. I think that that two stroke, that 500 two stroke is awesome. I mean, that I, that thing's awesome, Mike. I can't wait to get that thing done. The problem is, is the the Hondas and the KXs are faster. Yeah, they just vibrate too much. Oh yeah, yeah, they're horrible. I've ridden the CR five hundred a little bit. Nothing's just shake your teeth out of your head. Oh, but it's, isn't it so much fun? Yeah, that that's that LT five hundred went good. The problem now is like I got Alan Knowles. He's he built the motor on it and built a pipe on it, but he's just like, man, the parts are hard to find. Like. LT 500 parts are hard to find and they're expensive, you know? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, how Suzuki parts are Suzuki parts are ridiculous. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised me like seeing like any part, all the parts are ridiculously priced now. Yeah. But like, but I like that bike, I went and bought a new set of plastic for it and it was like 
I think over a thousand dollars for the plastic for LTR. <laughs> you have to get a different job just to pay for the plastic. Yeah. And then I, and then I go and get plastic for my, my wife's yard. It's like $420 for a whole set or something. I mean, it's like, I mean, Suzuki parts are, are just astronomical. Like I, I got rid of, I had, I got rid of my LTR, my last LTR year and a half ago. And I needed something for it. And I went, I, I, or I needed something like swing arm bearings or something. I bought, I bought genuine swing arm bearings and it was like 180 bucks or something. I didn't even, I didn't think about asking the price. I'm like, hey, guys, order these for me. They're, they're pivot bearings, you know, that can't be that much. I got them I'm like, what in the hell? Yeah. What did I get gold? Yeah. I mean, Suzuki parts are just crazy. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would be riding a, whether it be a dirt bike or be, or a quad would be riding a Suzuki right now, just because of the cost of the parts alone. I think you're going to run into it with all of the manufacturers. It's all changing. The Yamaha parts are getting more expensive as well. Yeah. You know, it's just like you go buy an FCR carburetor for a Yamaha. It's 1100, 1200 bucks, dude. That's ridiculously expensive. Yeah. I but mean, I mean, but so I mean, the, 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 the four stroke, you know, when we built that thing, it was, you know, it, it, it was a good thing, a bad thing. Like it, it, I think it changed a lot of things, but on the other hand, it was now, I don't, not only do I have to buy a Lego chassis, I had to go buy a freaking dirt bike too to pull the motor out of. <laughs> you know, I mean, we did, we bought a couple dirt bikes, pulled motors out. And I was like, what are we, what are we doing? This is, this is just stupid. I mean, we're, we're dumping money into this thing. You know, we probably shouldn't be, but we are, you know, we're just right. dumping money in this thing. And luckily, you know, I mean, it just kind of, it worked out really funny because the can the Cannondale rep for Cannondale ATVs happened to move two blocks from Steve Owens's house. And I was out at Glen Helen and he was out there trying to do motorcycle stuff or get, find people to ride motorcycles. Cause he's a local sales rep. Sees me riding a quad comes over and talks to me about riding a candle quad. I'm like, what are you? I'm like, those, I'm like the, the dirt bikes. Had, I don't know if the dirt bikes are even out yet. And they were just starting to come out with the quad. Nobody really had one. He's like, Oh yeah, I'm trying to find someone to ride this quad. And he's right. He's all, all excited about this quad. I'm like, all right, I'll try it. And I went and rode it. And I'm like, it's actually not that bad. And I don't have to buy a dirt bike and I don't have to go buy a chassis. And I could just go ride this four stroke and it runs halfway decent and you can go buy something, you know? And so it was kind of like, kind of changed the sport right there a little bit, I think, you know, with Cannondale coming in the game. Um, but they just had so many issues with stuff. I mean, it was just, one thing after another. I mean, I don't know how much you guys dealt with those things, but I got pretty lucky and mine ran just about all the time for the quads. <laughs> I had too many issues. Um, I wrapped a GNCC bike around a tree and wrecked the frame, but that was my fault. But other than that, I really didn't have too many issues with, with the bike itself, but I know a lot of people that did have a lot of issues with them, you know? We were in negotiations and this is secondhand for me giving you this uh with them to start working on them and it's all thinking that it's coming down the uh 
we had one for a very short time in the shop and we got a phone call and it went away and the deal was gone, just quiet. And then the day later, Cannondale uh, went out of business. Yeah. See, that's, I, I became, I became really good friends with the rep because he lived right by Steve and kind of right by me. And he was letting me basically, I, I never bought a Cannondale. They were always a demo bike or, or a demo bike through a shop that I got a ride for Alba or something like that. So I never actually owned one. Um, but we became pretty good friends and I ended up going back there and doing some testing for him near a race GNCC and was pretty much living at the factory at a hotel down the street and doing testing for them. And they were, they were like, they'd give me a new engine for my bike or they were kind of working on my bike a little bit, swapped the frame for me when I bent the frame and, you know, kind of trade out testing for doing that stuff and, and kind of became friends with not only the rep, but with some people working inside the R and D department. And I mean, I mean, they were just hemorrhaging money so bad. You could just see, I mean, all the issues they were having. And it was really unfortunate. I mean, um, the owner really was passionate about bicycles, really was passionate about trying to, you know, do the motorcycle ATV, you know, motorcycle thing originally, but ATV was because the market was growing and they needed income to make sales to fund everything that they were spending. Basically, is why the ATV came about. But they were they were really passionate. The group of people that that worked there, that built the stuff, that worked at the factory, you know, talk about talk about blue collar workers, man. Those guys were they everybody that worked at Cannondale at the factory, no matter who it was, they bled Cannondale. They loved that place. They, you know, Scott Montgomery, the owner, they loved him. I mean, it was a really cool environment to see, but it was really unfortunate that it failed. Um, but I mean, it, for a while there, when it first started, I mean, Nax was, Nax was their factory team. You know, they were doing demo bikes for people. They were, you know, they were really kind of almost the first, or they were the first factory to really kind of get back into ATV racing or being ATV racing when that whole swing changed and kind of came back. They're the ones that kind of kicked it off, you know, and then when the Z400 came out, you know, um, Doug had that hybrid that Tom Carlson built and then, you know, Rod Lapuznak, you know, another, another great industry guy, you know, he, he saw the market and really went after it and went out, you know, with, with, with Tom and, and Wayne and Doug and, you know, Doug was another kind of their flagship guy in that 400, 400 the first year, you know, that kind of got that whole factory for the, for the Japanese rolling again, you know, if, I think if Suzuki when it kind of came in and pushed that, it, you know, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have led to, you know, maybe Yamaha coming in and doing the support they've done and also the Kawasaki coming in and doing theirs and Honda the way they've done their support through the years. But, you know, I think it all kind of started with Cannondale kind of showing what could be done and, and, the, and the Japanese seeing that and just building on that. I can't believe that, that uh, KTM hasn't came back. Yeah, I think KTM's a, I think they're just a motorcycle company and they don't, I think they got in the quads because it was popular and everybody was doing it. And I think they would, they would be a real good, because they seem more niche than the OEs. Like they build, I mean, you look at what they build for dirt bikes. They got, 
Well, you want one with a light switch on it. Oh, you want one without a light switch on it. You want one with Kickstarter or one without a Kickstarter. I mean, they build so many variations of everything that kind of almost need that for the ATV market a little bit, you know. So I'm kind of surprised they haven't, but I think they're just their focus, as you see, is well. Would think about think about this if because they own gas gas they own husky yep. and they have ktm they could come out with the same platform for tvs and have three different models yeah that people could choose from that are all the same and everything's interchangeable it just says one says gas gas one says ktm and one says uh husky uh it, it, I mean, I would never buy one choke, choke, you know, but uh, that would be cool. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of that too is it's it, a lot of it comes from, I think, I, I, I believe, not, I mean, the Japanese are a little leery because the whole lawsuit thing back in the day. So they're really careful what they do. Um, I think, you know, like that's where you see, you know, Can-Am and, and, and Polaris where they they never were in that. So like so the side by sides, they just like are full tilt. Like you want 200 horsepower, we'll sell you 200 horsepower. You want a mini trophy truck, we'll sell it. You know, and Yamaha and everybody else is like, okay, well, we need to have safety belts in it. And I feel like cams and players are like, ah, that's just that's that's a minor thing, you know. Right. But I mean, that's where you know KTM could come in and really do good with that. But I think they're I think the leader goes all goes back to leadership. I think it's the leadership is more motorcycle oriented and focused than ATV. You know, they're, they're a motorcycle company and that's probably what um, whoever their leader is, is we're a motorcycle company. We're not an ATV company. We're a motorcycle company. And that's what we're going to be. And, um, and you know, you got to respect that. It just, you know, you see companies on the move and they're the, they're the modern day Honda, you know? Yeah they're they're taking they're taking the reins and and doing things in motorcycles right now that nobody else is and they're growing and they're selling uh you know they're selling these machines and uh i mean i'm not a huge fan but that two-stroke enduro bike i guess whatever you want to call it the, the, the 300 yeah i guess that thing's pretty awesome uh, yeah. i haven't tried one yet you're probably like me like <clears throat> growing up like a Husky, a Gas Gas, a KTM. You saw them at the tracks here and there, but you didn't want to be on one. That thing was like redheaded stepchild. Like who would buy that thing? You know, I got my Honda, I got my Suzuki, I got my Yamaha, you know, Kawasaki, whatever. I'm not buying a KTM. And I think that's maybe, maybe us at our age can grain our brains a little bit, but that's still how I feel a little bit. I'm like, I don't want to buy a KTM. I'm scared of that thing. You know, well, it's going to okay. fall apart. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm not a fabricator, but I'm a, but I'm a fabricate things that I need. Uh, Lauren's the engine builder, but I'm a, a portion of the engine side of it. You know, I get to build the chassis and go test them and do the things that, that we, that I do. And, um, you know, that, that machine that they came out with, they just never had a guy in their company that knew anything about quads. Yeah. I know. I think Timmy and Shane might've helped a little bit maybe back then, but, but it's also, they didn't listen. The problem is they didn't listen to them. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's the problem is, you know, I think, I think, you know, Doug did some stuff with Suzuki. I think they listened to him pretty good. Um, but there's a lot of times 
you know, I think like Dustin might even talked about that, you know, like they would say, Oh yeah, you know, this is what we want to do for on this bike. And it goes back and it comes back. And then it's, or maybe it's Jimmy or somebody talking about the Kawasaki's or something, but it go back to Japan and come back and not be changed or be something totally different. They wouldn't listen, you know, because they kind of don't sometimes maybe quite understand the market fully, but, and I, but I know a lot of people or there's people too that deal with KTMs and, you know, they just make running changes on stuff too. And that frustrates a lot of the aftermarket people and, you know, what, what's your VIN number? We need to know. So we know what, you know, assembly was in that clutch or on that crank. Cause it's different from 10 VIN numbers down the road. I mean, they do a lot of rolling changes too, which frustrates a lot of people as well. You know, well, I have a bad taste in my mouth for KTM because of what they did to, um, what they did to us in rendezvous, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't Polaris's fault. It was KTM's fault. Um, Polaris just got, just got hung with it. And, and I wasn't even supposed to know. And uh, I don't even know if talking about it's a bad thing. It's what's been 10 years. Uh, they, they gave us three faulty motors. The serial numbers were faulty. And, and um, I was on my way out the door because Polaris didn't like me. And uh, Doug was going a different direction because he thought he was going to make money. And um, one of the guys in the chain gave me some information. Uh, I answered his questions and got the information I needed. And he goes, yeah, this is what you were given. Bang, 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 bang. They were destined to fail. And they did exactly fails. All three of the engines that we had failed the exact same way. And, you know, we didn't have all the tooling to repair them. So uh, fortunately, Lauren had given me a crash course uh, working on the top end of, of these things right before I left to go to rendezvous. And he goes, ah, you're not going to need it. They're pretty durable. You're not going to need it. I'm in the freaking tent with no tools trying to fix the top end on this thing. And, and I took a punch and a hammer to the cam chain to peen it over so that it, because it didn't have a master link, you had to, you had a, like a, um, a rivet zert, you know, that, yeah. that pressed them together. And I had no tools to do this. They make a custom bitch and tool for it. And I didn't have it. So I put the thing back together. We put it back in the frame and, and, uh, off they went and it ran it finished the race um you know sonics group gave us a uh, an intake rubber because the stock ones would fail yeah i was pretty frustrated when that all ended you know i mean unfortunately doug and i had parted ways right after that and um i was pissed about that and and trying to convey that information to him it didn't work because uh, we had we had went different directions and, and, uh, it was a bad deal. And, and I, so I've never got over the KTM thing for that. Um, plus, you know, Polaris telling me, Oh, we did all this heat testing on the thing. It works. It doesn't, I'm testing the first IRS bike and it's overheating in the sand dunes in the wintertime. I'm like, guys, the guys, what did you do? This isn't, it, it doesn't work, you know? So you, you get to learn, you, you know, I love that part. I wish we would get new models uh, because I really enjoy taking them and testing them and figuring it out. 
um, I got to do a little bit of UTV stuff and, and, uh, I always end up putting them on their lid. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, I mean that, that whole Cannondale thing. I mean, I, I was firsthand in their R and D witnessing a lot of stuff going on there. It was, it's crazy. You know, I mean, it was, it was a real neat learning experience, but also it was, interesting learning and seeing how people do things. I'm sure their way of doing stuff probably wasn't maybe the right way, a proper way or the correct way, or maybe for them it worked, but other people, it was definitely a learning experience. I can say that, you know, and then why did they sound like they were sawing themselves in half? So I got a good one on that one. I get, I get that first Cannondale. You know, and I'm I'm real good friends with Henson, and I tell him like I call Wayne. And Wayne's like, yeah, bring it up. We'll see if we can put a clutch basket in that thing or figure it out. You know, let's, let's take a look at it. We'll build some parts for that thing. <clears throat> so I take the thing to Henson's, and it's I I unload it on my truck. I push it in there, and I have I rode it in or or what I did, but it was in the shop running, and Brian Henson runs from the other room and starts screaming, "Shut it off! Shut it off!" He didn't know what it was, but he thought it was going to blow up whatever was out there running in the shop. Yep. <laughs> you know, right. There's, 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 there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong with it. Like, no, this is how this thing sounds. It's just how it is. Man, that, that, that it was unnerving. I don't know how you wrote it without thinking that, that it was just going to saw itself in half. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, and then, I mean, you know, Suzuki came with that 400, which that, that next year after they came with 400, I ended up, I ended up doing a deal with Alba that year. And so I had to be able three and I rode, I rode that 400 because they had pro and pro production at nationals that year. I rode both classes on that 400. So I was at least to start the season off with. So I'm out there racing people on CRFs and, and, Hybrids and everything on a, on a freaking 400. And Doug was just running, I think. I think Doug was just running pro production only, I think. And then on pro, he was running his hybrid bike. But I was running that freaking LTZ in both classes. And I, I, I was wrenching on it myself and racing both classes. I had three bikes in the back of my box, man, going to the Nationals that year. And it was everything I could do to keep a bike together for both classes in the weekend. It was so bad because I was just destroying those things. I mean, frames and didn't, didn't you switch to the Yamaha um, before the end of the year? Yeah. So that's, I was about fed up with myself and that was, I was riding for Alba and that was before they sent um, a mechanic for me um, that year. So I was, I was just wrenching on thing myself. And then, Helen calls me and go, and you know, I'm living in California. He's like, Hey, I'm going to go to this press intro. Um, and I want you to come with me and be my rider. Cause I'm going to shoot it, you know, cause all the amazing guys come and they bring a rider to ride and they have amazing guy to shoot. Cause I'm going to shoot it. And I want you to come with me since you're local and everything. And you're, you know, you started that force, you know, the first young know, four stroke and, you know, you got to come to this thing. It's, it's, it's the secret. I can't tell you what it is. We got to come. I'm like, okay. And we kind of knew, I mean, pretty much knew what was going to, I mean, if they're releasing something, kind of figured what was coming. You know, so we showed up with that thing and they announced it. And 
kind of the first time I met most of the Yamaha marketing department and those guys and everything. And we ended up, you know, shooting the bike, riding it that weekend and, or that week or day or whatever it was. And it was out at LACR in Lancaster. And we were talking to them. They're like, yeah, you know, you guys, you know, these are amazing bikes. You guys can take them. So Pell and I are talking. They're like, we've got a high point in like two weeks. Like, like, he's like, we should, he's like, he's like, you need to race it there. You know how Pellin gets all excited. You need to race it there. This is going to be You need to race it there. You know, just go out there and we're just going out there for Yamaha. And, you know, Pellin getting himself all revved up, how he does. So like, okay, you know, and at the time I was, at that time I was riding for Lone Star and, um, and Scott Butler was working there. They used to work at, work at Lagers, you know, and Scott and I were talking about it. And so I can't remember if we sent the bike to Lone Star or if he just measured it somewhere, but somehow, somehow Dan, I mean, I got to thank Dan a lot for this one. Somehow Dan and Scott within like a week and a half or two weeks, built a set of arms, built an axle. I think we had a steering stem on it. And I think maybe a swing arm. I can't remember, but got the bike wide. Basically Wayne Meridian built a set of shocks for it within a week or two. And Skylar Stewart was going to the race and hauled it out for me to the race. So that year, high point show up in the pro production class and, I have this bike on the cover. We uncover it. And everybody's, I mean, everybody in the pits is talking about it because it's the first one. Like they, like when Yamaha released it, they're like, yep, they're going to dealers like today. When we're at the press release, they're like, you guys can announce this stuff right now. They're going to dealers. They're shipping. They're remade. They're going to be at dealers like on their way today. So, so we weren't really worried about them, you know, because there was a whole homologation thing where it had to be somebody built. They're like, they're built. They're on their way to dealers. Like, whether it might be a dealer in California, there's enough, there's, I can't remember what the, how many it was, but there's enough of the homologation that shouldn't have been an issue. By the time you guys get there to the race, you should be fine. So like, okay, so we show up with this thing and, ra- and go to race in it. And of course it, it rains at high point, which is not the best place to race in the rain, but they had that uphill triple there. And at the time that was pretty hard. And I ended up jumping that thing a couple times and, I think either I think Timmy might have won or Doug might have won. I got third. I got third with those guys a bunch that year in pro production, but I cased that thing so bad and that axle was so bent that the tire was the tires wouldn't even stay on the ground. I mean it didn't break, but the axle was so bent I couldn't even rather ride the thing, but I rode it out and got a third. And we got the thing all fixed up and I went to Loretta's like two weeks later or three weeks later, whatever Loretta's was from there and by then there was quite a few people with the, with those bikes. And, you know, by then there was probably at least 50 or hundred of those bikes at the races. It seemed like, and, but I, I had in the pro production class up and I went out that race and just smoked everybody and just ran away with it all Loretta's. And usually Loretta's is one of my worst races because of the heat, but I, I've been riding so much that year and was in such good shape. And that bike works so good. We had, we dialed that thing in so quick for that race. It just worked awesome. And just really went out there and kicked some butt that weekend. It was, it was a good race. It was definitely one of, one of the more memorable wins too, that I had, you know, second race out on it and went and won. And, and then they, and then that was, so that was 90 or sorry, 2003. 
And then in 2004, they announced that at Lorenz, I think they announced they're going to have Glen Helen National next year. First race of the season is going to be Glen Helen. They announced at that race. And when I found that out, I was so excited because I was like, all right, Glen Helen all the time. I know that track. And I literally, from the day they announced they were going to have a race at Glen Helen, I rode virtually every single Thursday and Saturday practice day that they had until the national at that track. Just getting ready for that race. When that race came, the first moto, I went out and got the whole shot, checked out, dominated the first moto and second moto. I was a little bit tired and uh, Doug was just running really good. Doug, Doug ran me down past me and then I got him back right away. And then he got me back and was, was like, I don't need it. I don't need it to win the race. So I just kind of cruised her in second and won, and won that race. But that was like, that was probably the most prepared races I've ever been for in my life. <laughs> like I had that track just so much, so many laps on that track by the time that national came around from so when they, when they said they were racing there, I rode there nonstop every race I could race for six months almost. Just getting ready for that thing. That's so awesome. Yeah. Well, brother, we've covered a lot of a lot of things, and I'm sure that we could talk for another couple hours. Yeah. They didn't even get the racing stuff, the fun stuff. <laughs> no, we're gonna have to have a second episode. Yeah. Um, uh, we've expired our time for. We've we, we went over. We've went over time, but that that's okay. I I really have enjoyed this. Um, I want to. Um, invite you back for a second episode. Um, check your schedule and get back to me. Yeah, and, I'm, and, sit down I'm, and start from Glen Helen, two thousand four, and you can uh, you can tell me the rest. Um, there's a couple questions I have about some some things that went on in your career that that we'll get into as well. Yeah, yeah. Talk to talk to your nephew. He probably has like, some good stories. Well, I want the ones that we can talk about. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, I, I will be reaching out to Alan and, and I have already have and uh, wanted to sit down and talk best in the desert with him Yeah, because him and I were, were partners in, in best in the desert in the 2003, 2004 season. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just let me know when you want to talk again. I, I mean, I got a, I'm heading to GNCC next weekend, first round for this year. I got to drive the display truck and trailer out for that. So I'll be on the road all next week, but yeah, anytime you want to talk, just call me. We'll, we'll finish this thing up the rest of the way. That sounds great, man. I want to thank you so much for spending so much time with ATV talk and, and I really enjoy your stories and, and I really appreciate you and, and, uh, keep up your work in the ATV world because uh, we need people like you pushing it forward. All right. Sounds good. Man. Thank you. We'll All right. Up soon. Thank you so okay. much. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. The team here at ATV talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATV talk podcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. 
Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org, or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.